Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Miniatures Monthly. It is the 15th of May, <laughs> 2019. My name is Chris Thurston and joining me as ever, every month, definitely every month, right time. on time, it's Tom Senior. Hello. It's, uh, it's lovely being in the summery weather, isn't it? Yeah. Not at all freezing cold in the middle mm. of uh, a dark December. I've got some bad news for you, Tom. Oh, what's that? It's December. <gasps> we fucked up! <laughs> <laughs> um... We just got busy. We just got quite, quite busy. Life's been a lot. Life's been a lot for a long time. And it has been eight months yes, since, yeah. since the last time we did this. Very sorry for that. Um, I think a strategic error was putting the word monthly in the name of that podcast. And yeah. also promising to do them monthly. Yeah, it was both of those things. So, yeah, so... Not wholly to make light of the, the magnitude of this fuck-up. Like, uh, we really have... Six, I think... The only thing we could do to ameliorate this uh, <laughs> scheduling disaster would be to share the email thread that has extended through, oh, or God, email months. threads through most of this year saying, like, how about next weekend? On and on and on till eight months past. Mm. Um, it's been a lot, and we've not, either of us, been able to make time for either this or to be honest, hobby in general through mm. the big swathes of this year. And that's something I think we'll get on to. Um, and... I think I've certainly learned the lesson. Never put a cadence of time in the title of your podcast. <laughs> it's, it's a bad lesson. idea. Um, but I do also understand how important these schedules are to people. So I think one thing to, at the top of this podcast for us to get into is um, what our future plans are. Mm. Because I think we were just discussing this and I think life is hopefully going to get a little bit easier for both of us in the new year, but it's not necessarily slowing down completely. Mm. I know I've had a complete career change you are engaged now tom and you know have a wedding to imminently plan gotta do that yeah so we're not going to commit to monthly mm. uh given that the podcast is called just monthly <laughs> <laughs> yeah we might have to look at the name of the podcast yes potentially uh, but we're having a think about that uh, but mm. it'll be the same type of stuff like, yeah we still want to keep doing it. that's the main thing don't don't worry like yeah yeah we we're, there's still a lot of enthusiasm for this idea and and particularly i think um, a lot of enthusiasm for the community that has initially grown up around this. Yeah, for sure. Like, to the extent... I remember, um, not to skip ahead too much, of being at the London GT in September, mm. uh, where there were a lot of uh, Minis Monthly uh, listeners and community members wearing Minis Monthly t-shirts, a podcast at that point that hadn't happened for five months. Hmm. Um, and realizing for my own part that this was for me now primarily a community first mm. and anything that you or I could do to support that or direct people to it via a podcast yeah, is sure. ultimately secondary. Yeah. Um, that's not to abdicate, you know, responsibility too much, but yeah, to, to further the point, I think there's a version of the t- version of the future where we relaunch the podcast with a new name mm. and do it as a, a regular check-in on our hobby lives rather than committing to the schedule. Yes. But if we could get one out in January, that doesn't mean we won't. Absolutely. We'll try. It just means that I'm not going to write down at the end of the show notes of this episode, we'll be back (laughs) at this this day. At this time, yeah. Um, Obviously, appreciate that that's going to be disappointing for people, um, but it is what it is, and I'd rather go out with a... I don't know if it's either a bang or a whimper. I'd go out. I'd rather go out with a sign that said very clearly, "I'm leaving now." <laughs> <laughs> no one's leaving though. It's fine. No, like, indeed. Um, it, it's going to stick around. It's just, yeah. Sorry for the long, long break. It's been wild. 
And because of our long break, it is... Uh, you'll be very relieved to hear. There's no sense that we're going to do a news section. <laughs> I mean, goodness me, we'd be here until Christmas. I was. Uh, I listened to the beginning of our episode 23 this morning um, in order to get up to speed on the latest happenings. And we were in that uh, episode. Warcry had just been revealed, mm. and we were extrapolating the kind of game it might be from um, from the reveal trailer. And also, um, I was saying completely wrongly that this definitely wasn't going to be the sum of the updates to the Slaves of Darkness faction for Age of Sigmar. Hmm. Uh, we now sit here in December, having just played Warcry, which we'll get to in a bit. Me sat next to the new Slaves of Darkness Battle Tome. Yes. Um, with all the answers on those subjects raised in April. So we can <laughs> at the very least update you on that. Yes. But everything else, the year of, like, apocalypse and... Mm. Uh, oh, Christ, there's been so much, like, Aeronautica Imperialis... Beastgrave, um, Bone Reapers. We'll get to some of that stuff, but we're not going to try and round it all up because no. you probably don't want to hear it. And we're not the people you should be getting that news from because <laughs> that news was news in June. I think we'll, uh, we'll pick stuff out that have kind of inspired us because there's been some great models released and some cool stuff announced. And the yeah. stuff that's really tickled us, I think we'll focus on for this, this catch-up episode. Yeah, and, and actually more broadly, I think it's like it's almost a bit like going back to the first episode in a way because we both had different experiences of the hobby over the last six months and it's meant different things so in, in the very first episode of this podcast we went and talked about why we'd gotten back into this stuff yeah Tom what what has your six months been like well eight months the, even the problem was that I was forced to move flat because we got chucked out of our old place mm. and for miniature stuff that's surprisingly disruptive yeah. because everything has to go into boxes safely and then actually just unpacking it all and sorting it out again and finding space in a new flat and a new place mm. uh, and also my lamp broke oh no <laughs> so uh, and with the, the winter nights drawing in it's become increasingly hard to paint so that the sort of window of hours that I have to actually do hobbies shrunk and shrunk and shrunk um, but hopefully over Christmas I'll get a new lamp and get back on get back on the hobby um, but just to kind of that life dis- disruption has kind of put ho- pushed hobby to one side mm. and also hobby like this hobby requires a lot of concentration and I know it can be like meditative in some ways um, and a great distraction and uh, something that doesn't involve screens and is very creative, mm. but it is, you do have to engage your brain quite a lot to, to really think about what you're doing when you're coming up with paint schemes, when you're actually like applying the paints. And um, I felt like almost too exhausted to do that level mm. of activity in my downtime. So my downtime has been much more passive activities. I watching television. Um, I'm keen to, to sort of like spark up my brain and get that creativity back and get, get the hobby stuff going. Cause for me, it's richer than just sitting down and watching eight episodes of the expanse in a row, <laughs> which is a thing I might have done this weekend. Right. I've had a very similar experience, like also moved house. Mm. Um, in that time, I, ha- I went through bursts of being very, very productive with hobby and not at all. And this is off the backdrop, against the backdrop of a new job. But I have I found the same thing. I don't, I find that there are very few things that relax me like painting does. Mm. And very few things that I get sort of really excited to go and do or feel good for having gone and done, like getting a game in of, of Warhammer or, or yeah. spending that time. But it's interesting how neither of those things seem to be enormously compatible with a stressful life mm. weirdly yeah like it's, it's not quite downtime is it no it's uh it's, it's very active time um even if it, it is a break and it, it is recharging it's still it's almost the there's a barrier to sitting down to do it it's like this is going to be a few hours of involved activity mm. and that like you get too into it but like it, if you've got a busy life but also the way that you know the world is 
ha- happening around us in the kind of uh, political turmoil. So yeah. like that also applies an extra layer of stress, I think, that people don't really talk about. But when things are tumultuous, there is that underlying layer of anxiety. And, and I think that does change the, the way you want to escape and the, the types of escape that you choose when you sit down mm-hmm. and have that spare time. I think about this a lot, and I think this is worth digging into a bit, because I think... We were talking about this earlier, but so many people I know have been through that this year. Mm. And I think we're, you know, we're living through particularly tumultuous times for various reasons. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of things to track. And, and there are times where the hobby, because of its ability to completely consume your planning and your thinking and mm. your, <clears throat> your hours when you're kind of actively engaged in it can be a great distraction from that, but it can also be really hard to square against it. And it is set against forms of distraction that are um that ask far less of you mm. so um i've been through periods of very busy hobby activity this year but also through some real slumps and i'm just coming out of one now and in that slump i played a lot of destiny like not to turn this into yeah, a regular right. cnc but like you know i went off and ground out the the big title for the last season and i got it and and i did you know some real traditional mmo graft to do that stuff and that's because um you know, that was just sort of at my fingertips. That was something I could um, slip into. Because I've, I've put myself in a situation post-move where I wanted to... I knew what hobby had meant to me in the previous house, and I wanted to make sure there was a space for it in this place. And I uh, I am sat there right now. I, I built myself an L-shaped desk, mm. um, which has my work computer. I work from home now. Um, well, work computer on one side and my hobby desk on the other. And what was incredible about that is I found myself doing far more work mm. because I'm always at work. Like my thought had been, you know, I work remotely for a team that is distributed throughout the world. And I'm, I, I, you know, I have the, the freedom that comes with that, which is amazing. And the downside, which is being almost always on call yeah. and, um, and needing to respond to things often very quickly. <coughs> I had kind of imagined a world where I could sit and, you know, sort out my emails, make sure everything's, you know, done and I've made some progress. And then in my breaks, rotate 90 degrees, paint some, or 45 degrees, paint some models and then break over, rotate back. Mm. But what I found was I was always at work. I, I couldn't actually relax. Miniatures painting for me requires that I don't have other distractions. Yeah. Whereas in my breaks, I would alt tab into destiny mm. and do play for half an hour and that, you know, earn some progress towards a badge or a gun or something like that. Yeah, maybe it's, it all the way, slipped. maybe it's the way that's helping chunks up your time. Like, yeah. how long does it take to paint a model? Like, you, you can, what, what are your goals for a hobby session, for example? I think these are the things that I have to ask myself. I, mm. I, I rarely set myself a goal for a hobby session. I'll sit down and I'll do as much as I want to or can. Mm. Um, whereas it might be healthier to say, I'm going to paint one model in two hours. And that is my block of time uninterrupted. And then I yeah. can get back to other stuff. But it's, it's very hard to ha- like have that discipline, especially when it's supposed to be an enjoyable, uh, you know, escapist thing. Like it's, mm. You want to just be able to slip into it and not worry about how long it's going to take. Um, but you're right about it requiring very intense concentration. Like being constantly distracted by stuff is just not going to work if you're painting something, really. And it's a, it's a shame in a way because I think, and I think about this a bunch, I think this is, you know, the most rewarding sort of leisure thing in my life uh, aside from pen and paper role playing which mm. fits into a very similar bracket right um <clears throat> and we've talked plenty on this podcast about all the different parts that go into that from the sort of the community aspect to it to the sort of window shopping aspect of it yeah like the you know it's funny like i've probably spent a tiny percentage of the money i've spent on miniatures as i have on pen and paper role playing which will probably always be my first love really yeah but 
there's something about the collecting aspect, the, you know, uh, planning a new project aspect that is super appealing about miniatures. Mm. And I think I said on the last podcast, actually, because I heard myself say it this morning and I've forgotten I said this. I think there's some danger in that. Like when you're time poor for, for hobby, getting over invested in the window shopping aspect or the fantasy hobby aspect, mm. because you don't have time to do it, but you do have time to buy it, which right. is a real dangerous place to be. That's the worst possible place to be. And I have been there this year. Mm. Like I want to be open about that. Like I have, in, I've started projects and I uh, moved away from them. Like I started Slanesh uh, after the last episode where I talk about the new keeper of secrets model. Yeah, right. I went and bought the new keeper. It's, it's in my cupboard and I, I haven't painted it yet. Um, the, uh, I've made a start on a Chaos Space Marines army that is plotting extremely slowly. I, um, I, my, my, I decided that my present I would buy myself for the house move. Uh, the house move is a bit of a nightmare. I really don't recommend moving house and then having your movers bail on you three days before the move. Oof. That sucks. Jeez. That really sucks. I had to hire a really nice man with a van to help me move all my Warhammer. Yeah. Right. And other goods that I own. Clothes and that. <laughs> Things. But my, my, uh, my sort of self, present for that was to pick up the Titanicus Warlord set oh, nice. which I had wanted for ages and sat there I haven't cracked it open yet because I just haven't you know sort of I, I, I'm almost trepidatious about it I don't want to get into that too much but mm. like that's something I'm really desperate to do yeah. but you know my, my sort of shame pile has grown to the point where I if I continue to regard it as shame then it's almost like an ex- existential threat it's too much so I'm just gonna you know we can get to that when we talk about what we've been up to I suppose but you know I like sort of went through that ringer of I'm still into this, I'm still into this, I'm still into this and now where I am with it is realising that while I have this backlog and all this other stuff I need to find a scale of hobby that works for the life I have now mm. and this feels like the outcome of six months of trying to get my product, my, my painting rate back to where it was, overdoing it sometimes, doing too much and burning out mm-hmm. All of these things that probably could have been stories told on individual episodes of the podcast if we managed to get it out, but I've aggregated into this sense of like, okay, this is me coming back to it. Last couple of days, I've had some really good momentum for it, helped by some new releases that I really like. Let's figure out what I'm going to try and do, as you say, with goals this month. Mm. Let's, you know, plan for the next game I'm going to play. Let's rebuild this and figure out how to factor it into a, a different way of getting by day to day. I guess um, tournaments are quite useful for giving mm-hmm. you a kind of deadline for stuff. If you can't set deadlines yourself, like ha- having to have an army for a, an event is is a pretty motivating factor, which I, yeah. I know you've done some events this year as well. Yeah, so uh, behind you right now, Tom, is the 800-point Soul Blight Vampires army I painted in a week. <laughs> oh, yeah, <nice. laughs> um, That was the last big gasp of hobby I did. Um, that was for a doubles tournament, the doubles tournament at London GT. Oh, yeah. Um, and that man, it was September, and I, I was going to go into it. But yeah, so I, I, I painted uh, 800 points of Soul Blight converted, so all female Soul Blight vampires. So the Blood Knights are um, Sisters of Battleheads on uh, Dark Elf, Dark Rider horsemen with Graveguard weapons. Right. Um, and yeah, I'll take some photos. They, uh, they were speed painted using contrast, which we'll get to. Um, and then they haven't had their highlight pass yet, so they they don't look as good as they could be uh, with some Vargeists and a Coven Throne, which is the maddest model, yeah, by the way. That's spectacular. Um, they were really fun. I would happily expand them, actually. Um, so, yeah, I did that. I did London GT, uh, placed middlingly hmm. with uh, Zinch. The only, I was the only Zinch list there that wasn't a change host. 
Right. In fact, I was the only Zinch Mortals there. So Chain Chase is the one where you can swap units around. Yeah, yeah. it is. Um, I had a good time. I, again, it feels weird. Like I feel like I can't really do the battle report because it was three so months ago. Yeah, right. But um, I had a good time. I went through the real ring of like not being sure whether I wanted to do it midway through it. Right. But so sticking with it. And um, there were plenty of mini Swanty people there um, who, you know, who helped sort of boil along through that journey. I think I realized some things. One was, I don't think I will... There are things, there are things or experiences in life that I will undergo a certain amount of inconvenience for. Mm. Music festivals are a good example of this. Sure. I'm not mega into camping. I camped a lot as a teenager and I don't think I actually enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> like many things we do as teenagers. Yeah. Um, uh, but like for the right bands, I will sleep in a tent. Yeah. Um, similar thing applies to miniatures events. Miniatures events come with, uh, built in inconvenience factor yeah. of carrying things that you're protective of mm. that want to die. <laughs> <laughs> they want to snap in half. Yeah. And the fuss of that is, is frustrating. In fact, there was a moment in, in, I had the, the, the scary moment. Um, someone knocked over the, the chair that had all my miniatures on it during out London oh, GT. No. Almost everything survived and everything that died had broken along sort of very clean lines. Yeah, so it, yeah. it was fixable. Um, and it was strangely unapologetic, which was annoying, but I'm mm. extremely con- uh, conflict averse. So I just sort of went, yeah, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, um, but nonetheless, um, the other side of it is they had moved the venue. So last year, London GT, when I did report back from it, was in the Olympic Stadium, one of them in, in London. And they had these nightmarish security lines that took hours for everyone to get oh, through right, right. because they hadn't realized that there would be bag checks. Oh, Imagine god. bag checks at a Warhammer oh, event. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> at yeah. a Warhammer event that has like something ridiculous like 440k players and 200 AOS Incredible. players. It was like half a day to get in. Okay. It felt like it. This time they moved to a leisure center in the Lee Valley, like mm. real, real, real north of London, which was good, except I was staying with a friend who lives in southwest london right so it was literally two and a half hours each way and that uh really had a toll so i think my my sort of learning is those big events from now on i really want to do them but i'm going to treat them like mini holidays right like budget for a hotel Mm. you know budget for staying nearby like you know, I'm probably going to get a magnetic case despite owning like three crusade cases at this point. Sure. Just to fix that issue. Like, yeah, yeah. just, I think the more convenience you can build in to that experience, the better experience it is. Mm. And it's a bit like at that point, like a skiing holiday or a golfing holiday or whatever it is people do where doing it on a budget is hard mm. and probably like, I don't know how to phrase this exactly, and I feel like I've wandered off the topic of why we haven't spoken about minis for ages, but do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I feel like there are certain activities you can do. There are often luxury activities that scale with your investment in them differently to others. Yeah, that there are some things that you need to just do properly, otherwise they create more stress. Yeah, exactly. So I think about this about going to Paris on holiday, so I don't, go, I don't want to go to Paris on a shoestring. I want to go in and do mm. Moulin Rouge and everything. Like, I want to save up for two years and do it properly rather than just sort of half doing it because you create more stress and you create you create yeah. corners you realise you're not getting the full experience you're probably more tired for many reasons yeah um, and like tournaments are stressful mm. um, even without all of the hassle of the admin of getting there and stuff like 
Um, I enjoy playing with people, but there's still that kind of interpersonal. You meet a load of strangers, and yeah. so there might be dicks, and you, you never know quite what's going to happen. So there's all, there's that kind of uh, tension there as well. Like uh, the actual games are really satisfying, and the hobby on display is splendid. And it's amazing just to see a hall full of, full of people playing Warhammer. It's a really cool thing. The sound of dice rolling mm. and people joking. Uh, it's great. Um, but it, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of stress involved. Yeah, there is. I think it's. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's about knowing that you have a better time saving up to invest in doing it properly because mm. there are little things like you do meet people that you really get on with yes and you know but if you are staying two and a half hours away you're not sticking around afterwards for a yeah pint. that's true and like that's kind of the point yeah like yeah um the point's of the point um i will say on the positive side i don't want to sound too gloomy um i had some really amazing games in that event and i can't blow by blow them because it's been ages but um i excited a fun army that i really liked running uh which is a big thing and um, I had one of the best games of AOS of my entire life against a Nighthaunt army, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, where we both had chronomantic cogs. <laughs> right. So we were both speeding up things by two inches. Right. So I had this one block of 30 Zangor that can run and charge, getting plus two to run, plus four to run, plus four to charge. Oh my God. Literally just Sonic the Hedgehogging up and down yeah. the board. Yeah. Doing hills sped up for the beastmen running forward. While uh, he had this clump of heroes, so including an allied vampire lord and and uh, various nighthaunt heroes, yeah, that was being very slowly chased by a purple sun that the changeling <laughs> that the changeling had dropped on them on the first turn. Uh-huh. It was very very funny because it, it like uh, the purple sun uh, on a six instantly kills models below a certain wound count. Yeah, so it turns, uh, turns to amethyst or something. Yeah, it? turns them to amethyst statues. Hmm. So it was chasing these blade gate revenants and these heroes and not doing anything until the turn where it um, turned a vampire lord to oh, <laughs> amethyst wow. statue. Wow. It was really, really good. Did, it was you, did the, you bring the purple sun? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's, he's there in my cabinet. Yeah. Um, I can see his face staring at the side of yeah. Let's, um, let's... So we've both had the experience of moving house with hobby, mm. which I think is actually maybe worth returning to because it's a real thing. It's a nightmare. <laughs> it, is, it is a nightmare. Um, how have, and, and you mentioned that, but I wanted to return to it, the difficulty of like, I don't know, finding a place for your, you know, for, for this post move, post new place. I think. How have you found that? I, th- it's, I have too much stuff, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, I have too much stuff. Um, for a flat, really. Uh, I think more so than there's kind of space issues, like, it's hard to find the space for it, but we're lucky we've got loads of storage in the flat. But the, the thing that's really put me off is, is the impermanence of living in a place that I could be chucked out of and have right. to redo it all again. So, uh, the reason I still, like, left loads and loads of my Warhammer in the, the boxes that they moved in is because I don't, part of me doesn't want to unpack them because a landlord could move us on at any moment. Right, yeah, because you were you you were faced with that really abruptly, weren't you? Yeah, so place. they're just like they want to rent to students, so off you go. Um, and that you can't like set up shop properly when that's kind of hanging over you. So when our lease is up, um, I, you face the prospect of having to like pack it all up again, having to like take care of it all over again. Mm. And so it, it, for that reason, for months and months, most of it is still packed, um, just because of that sense of impermanence, that sense of insecurity. Yeah. Um, which is just a, an unfortunate consequence of the renting lifestyle that we're forced to adopt. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. It's interesting, like, for me, because, yeah, I find that minches and, and this hobby specifically have a huge relationship with nesting, basically. Yeah. With, like, building space for yourself. So, you know, I moved into a new rental place or in my office now, which... Um, I built to support my interest. I made some decisions to try and, like, I've got a glass cabinet for my models, things I've wanted to do for ages, in the knowledge that this is impermanent as well. Right. Right. You know, I'm hoping that 
you know, when our year is up, we'll just get another year. Mm. Um, but like, I sort of, that, I did that in defiance of that. Like, I almost made the opposite decision, but for the yeah. same reasons, it yeah. was like knowing I, I wanted to sort of do it because I knew that otherwise I would wait. And when, because it was a stressful move for a bunch of reasons, I knew that I wanted the move done. Mm. So rather than have, like, I kind of wanted the boxes gone yeah. within a month. Uh, we, this was an, we'd moved from a furnished place to an unfurnished place. Mm. So yeah. you had to get every piece of furniture in the house, which is expensive and takes time. But there was a, there was a month where my hobby was Ikea, the big Warhammer. Yes. The, <laughs> the big grown up Warhammer. Uh, yeah. Warhammer. The bad grown up Warhammer <laughs> with bad rules. Yeah. <laughs> Missing pieces. In case workshop make. Uh, desks. Ah oh, man, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it would be it would be called something like the kind of like bl- blood scourged, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, surface writing surface sanctum. Doom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'd actually I, buy that. I would buy that. Like, or what if Warhammer had IKEA names? Even better. so, like, what's this cavalry man called? Skull. Bongi. Bongi. <laughs> um. Uh. Yeah. So I made some. I did make some decisions, however, to try and rein in the kind of. Oh man, this feels like the uh question of, of this hobby and maybe this podcast, which is like, at what point do I just own too many pointless things? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but like, right. you know, pointless is an enormously loaded and, and very charged thing to try and talk about in an era where no one owns anything. Yeah. Right, where you rent your television from a marketing man mm. and so on. But um, I had this sort of thing where I, what I didn't want was to set up a hobby space where I have things that uh, that growing shame pile, all the rest of it, slowly vanished into cupboards. Mm. So one thing I did was try and make a space that was nice to be in, but that didn't have any cupboards. So everything is shelves or open face, open facing cabinets, basically. With the reasoning being that at any given time in this room, I can see all of the things I have. Yeah. Which means that if there are things that I have that I don't think I should still have or that I invested in that maybe need to find a different home, I'm always aware of them. Yeah. Because I think the danger zone with hobby is when it's out of sight, out of mind, and you have this investment in some plastic that is actually never going to do anything yeah. for you. blogs to the spiders now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. When I lived in Marsh's place, a lot of things belong to the spiders. Yeah. There's a lot of spiders in the house as well. It wasn't until moving here that I realised that that was an above-average amount of spiders. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. There's something about um, the way insects follow Marsh around. <laughs> there is, yeah. <laughs> because uh, we used to podcast in the graveyard. This is getting off the point, but... That was always on the verge of being overtaken by woodlice and various insects and creatures. I think he, I think he is drawn to low lying areas. <laughs> right, I see. <laughs> yes. I think they may be where he spawns. I, <laughs> I don't know. But nonetheless, you know, I now live on a hill, a tall hill in a, in a relatively tall house. And, um, yeah, far fewer of those issues. However, this, um, attic that we're in now, my new office, uh, when I first moved here, it had a dying wasp's nest in the loft nearby. Oh dear. Um, and what this meant is it would generate, the room would apparently like procedurally generate ex- like extremely lethargic dying wasps. Oh no. So you'd get a wasp in the room, but it would like barely walk anymore. Right. Like where my hobby desk is under the skylight is yeah. sort of, um, was peak, uh, wasp crawling around saying oh, like, help kind of territory. Yeah, yeah. And I am, as I said, an extremely conflict averse man to the point where I wouldn't really kill them. So I just pick them up on a little piece of paper and post them out of the skylight. <laughs> yeah, okay. Which I think is basically what? just feeding local seagulls. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or magpies. Like, you're, you're contributing to the, the biomass, the local biomass. Yeah. Well, always, <laughs> very tyrannid kind of way of yes, doing things. that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> always contributing to local biomass. <laughs> uh, like, uh, yeah, very aware of the hypocrisy of that, like, oh, be free now. 
You're fucked. <laughs> You're completely fucked. Um, but I think the nest has died now. Yeah, I bought a little Black & Decker mini Hoover solely for dead wasps. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a massacre. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but so that's, uh, what, how do we get onto my bug experiences? Uh, I don't know. Uh, let's talk about moving and impediments. Let's, let's talk about what we have. Uh, let's talk about my experience of the hobby. I know you've been up to some bits and bobs. Let's talk about what you have been up to in the last eight months. Pretty much the only thing I've done, uh, was to, um, to buy some, um, contrast paints and undercoats and things hmm. and, uh, do some test models on some Skitarii. Vanguard, I think they are the ones with the guns rather than the ones with the pokey sticks. It's guns or yeah, it's Vanguard or Rangers. Uh, I think the the Vanguard, the right. ones with the um, transuranic arquebus, which is a very big gun mm. um, with a very silly name. Uh, and yeah, so I've, I bought two types of contrast undercoat. I bought the cold one and the warm one. They're both white, but there's a kind of bone-coloured one. There's a yeah. greyish one, basically, um, because I wanted to see... And it has a dramatic effect on what happens mm. to the colours and the finished state. And I wanted to go for kind of um, like mottled reddish cloaks that were not just one colour, but lots of different kind of colours. And actually, the contrast is beautiful because it's like painted with watercolours almost. It stays wet for so long, and yeah. it, like you can really blend stuff together and mess with it while it's on the model. Um, so uh, they were designed to help you speed paint, but actually, like I think we've both got sort of ways in which they're, it's just a very flexible, useful tool for certain I, things. Uh, yeah, well, as well. yeah, I, I love contrast. We should get to it, but yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I love this historic models. They're such a cool kind of. Uh, I love that kind of steampunk. Then it's not quite steampunk. It's kind of. I always think of it as like Victorian science fiction, yeah, which is distinguished from steampunk only because steampunk is something that's been like retroactively applied to Victoriana. Sure. Whereas, sure. like, if you look at like War of the World, like actually. Um, Tom, uh, you know, a friend, Tom Walton, who works for GW, uh, designed a bunch of miniatures recently, but including the new Adeptus Mechanicus flyer that yeah, got announced, right. yeah. which looks like an ornithopter from Dune. Yes, yes. But it also has that kind of like Victorian idea of what a spaceship would look like. Yeah, kind of thing. yeah. Because all of their tech comes from the golden age of, it's kind of bastardized from the mm. golden age of humanity. And uh, Warhammer's vision of that, Warhammer 40,000's vision of that appears to be a kind of Victoriana type thing. But th- there's also a kind of scrap heap, a scrap, um, scrap metal yeah. feel to them as well like things have just been bolted on they've been improvised they've gradually replaced bits of themselves with various pipes and machinery and it's all exposed and, and that's, mm. uh, that's a wonderful thing to paint and it's, those models are just like it's so 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 cool and I love the kind of desert wastelander raider kind of feel to the, the infantry in particular because um, the infantry are kind of they're going to get mown down in a real 40k battle um, but there's something quite there is something quite June about them like they come out of the desert, they come out, they come from Mars, and they just relentlessly hunt people down because they just have this singular vision, this singular kind of purpose to them. Mm. Um, and that comes across in the models, the way they're kind of all running forward, the way they're all aiming all the time, and they've got all their gadgets and like little weird kind of communicators. Um, it's just a wonderful range of models. It's really, really great. And so there's such a kind of strange variation within that because they've, because they've pillaged bits of technology from the golden age. You'll get the, um, Castle robots, which are these kind of, almost like a 1950s vision of what future robots might look like mm. with dome heads and that kind of stuff and reflective visors. Um, but then you get, as you say, the ornithopter and then you've got like the, the troop transport, which is almost like a World War II kind of uh, lander, a lander yeah. right? So it's, it's this kind of mishmash of uh, human history mm. that somehow survived into the 41st millennium and is, is being reinterpreted by the Skitarii and, um, and the Adeptus Mechanicus in this new world. And that's such a cool fantasy, a cool kind of visual idea for, for an army. What's your goal for models? 
Army, kill team. Um, so kill team first. So I want to play some kill team. Um, kill team first. I've got some uh, a bunch of kind of troops now. I've got three or four boxes of various <laughs> kind of gifts. Um, so I'll, I'll get a, a nice hall of infantry up. But I really want to paint some custom robots. Mm. And once you start adding on bigger units like that, you're getting into army territory. Yeah. Um, so I could see myself having a, a ad mech army just because I love the models so much. Mm. Even if I never actually end up playing with them, I'll still enjoy painting them up. I'd happily play some 40k. Like, I think I finally found my 40k sort of faction, I think, with mm. the, the new Chaos Space Marine Codex, oh, yeah. which was a month ago at this point, but mm. is news for us. Um, partly because I think I'd realized that both of the armies that I'd been looking into previously, Necrons, which I still love, um, and Thousand Suns, are both really light on something that I think is really core to 40k, which is that really granular list building mm. and sort of army planning. Yes. Um, Necrons are very, very short on options, um, because being s- s- souls trapped in standardized machine bodies will do that for you. Mm-hmm. And Thousand Suns are just kind of not really about gear. Mm-hmm. Like they're about which spells you pick and stuff like that, which is not represented on the model. Yeah. But actually, I think, um, a lot of 40k's appeal to me comes from that sort of, uh, build your army making very meticulous choices about how everyone is armed kind of thing. Yeah, right. And Space Marines just happen to have a, a real uh, monopoly on that, I think, in <laughs> yeah. terms of customization and, and fitting into existing army patterns and so on. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, and so loving Chaos stuff as I do, that book coming along and, and realizing, oh, actually, I mean, I love the new Chaos models that came out this year and, and that kind of stuff. But... There's so many cool things you can do with them. And so what I started working on, and I've only finished one model, but I've been slowly building the rest, is a Red Corsairs oh, army, cool. um, who are these sort of raiders from the Maelstrom. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. They are renegade chapters rather than one of the first legions. So uh, the book Vigilus Ablaze, which is one of the Imperium Nihilus kind of campaign books, came with loads of new rules for renegade chapters as opposed to right. first, you know, founding legion uh, renegades. Um, and... Uh, I really like the Red Corsairs rules. I really like the paint scheme. And Red Corsairs are basically pirates mm. that sort of, um, you know, come out of the warp. In, and But they're also relatively recent traitors. So one thing I wanted to do is establish that, like, these are Marines from other chapters that have recently turned. Right. And so in a sort of opposition to, you know, the Thousand Sun stuff I already have or the um, AOS stuff I've been doing, I wanted to do what what does recent chaos look like? So, um, for example, I've been working on um, corn berserkers, which are obviously a unit type, but the models are super old, and people tend to associate corn berserkers with like the the big corn helmets and yeah, the sort right. of like world eater stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I wanted to do them like, what do corn berserkers look like when they're at the start of that journey, mm. and they haven't got all the accessories yet? Like, they don't show up to work day one as corn berserker, no, having no. bought all of the gear. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, I've got to take those skills first, right? Um, so I did some sort of strategic swaps with a friend. Um, I had a friend who wanted to have uh, Primaris Reavers in his army, mm. but wanted all of the full helmets and stuff. Right. So I got all... So Primaris Reavers have these bare heads where they have these, like, skull masks. Um, That's perfect. So I'm using them as yeah, nice. uh, one chaos space marine bodies for corn berserkers with the sort of Forge World resin chain axes and stuff. Oh, it looks cool. really cool. Cool, cool. I'm really, really enjoying that. That's a bit of a slow build. Like, I just get it to 500 points, 1,000 points. Yeah, yeah. But that might be a good foil for your Skitari. Yeah, yeah. We'll probably be similar points, honey. Um, 
And then I finally found a home for the armagers that I have from Forge Pain, which I got for the Necrons. Oh, yes. Because um, Codex Chaos Knights was actually really fun as well. Pick mm-hmm. that up. Um, and that had a piece of lore in it that I liked so much that I realized that I would actually do one of the book color schemes ah. if I ever do Chaos Knights. Yeah. Um, so there's a house called House, which I wanted to run alongside um, Chaos Space Marines. The house called House Khmer. Um, and I love this as a bit of like army setup, basically. So it's this noble house of imperial uh, loyalist knights. Mm. And then one day, the Ultramines show up to exterminatus the shit out of them. Right. Because they are a traitor legion. Mm. And they are not. They do not believe that they are. They're not a traitor household. They don't think this is the case. So they are now. <laughs> um, they are kind of now, but by default. So they flee. Right. Um, so they, a lot of them die and they flee into the warp. They flee into the warp. Also, um, then they get stuck in the warp. They get drawn to the Eye of Terror or the, you know, the, the Great Rift, the Cicatrix Maledictum. Yes. Um, and they end up fighting this endless war, trying to prove that they're good. Basically, oh, really? fighting demons, just trying to get back out of the, you know, just fighting and fighting and fighting. Eventually, they fight to the point where they're basically all dead and they just have these, like, warp haunted holes that are kind of, you know, just driven to violence, like, mm. driven to complete madness. At which point they get spat back out of the warp 10 years back in time. Oh, no. They, in their kind of blind rage, raise a couple of Imperial worlds. The Ultramarines notice, and oh, they go so back to their so home world, and it's a cycle. No! And that's fucking rad as hell. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> great. I, lo- I love those kind of... Um, it's a bit like the... Uh, Thousand Sons as well. Yeah. Is that I love a, a good tragedy. A good tragedy, right? Yeah. yeah. Is that meaning well, but somehow bringing doom upon yourself mm. inevitably. That's um, a good yeah. story. Well, of course you meant well. Yeah. <laughs> mm, what you say? I love the story that, of Warhammer 40,000. I love um, households as a concept as well, mm. as them being. It's, it's that kind of knight, knightly, almost chivalric kind of yeah. idea, right? That each of them can have their own codes and they're not necessarily. Um, obviously, they're loyal to the Imperium, but they don't necessarily have the kind of adeptus kind of rule yeah. book for how to behave so they, they can there's more freedom there I like that there's a lot of that that's freeing about the chaos equivalent of of imperial things so yeah um, Chaos Space Marines um, Chaos Knights is you have the freedom to break the rule where you want to mm. but you can stick to it for, to the extent that makes sense yeah sure like um, like with my sort of planned Chaos Space Marine stuff I've been sort of working towards having something that looks like a chapter that's recently fallen Hmm. so they do have slightly too many bikers and and that kind of thing but you know it's like they're not so far out of the Codex Astartes that you wouldn't notice it anymore yeah it's like it's still there it's just they've got they're much better at accessorising now like (laughs) there's a lot of as chaos chaos tends to be yeah. yeah exactly yeah you just zhuzh that thing. Yeah, Give it some pizzazz. <laughs> yeah. The dark pizzazz. The dark pizzazz of chaos. <laughs> um, man, so yeah, so you've got your Skatari AI on the go. Yes. Have you had any thoughts AOS-wise? Uh, so I've, I've painted two Ideneth Deepkin. It took me so long. <laughs> I've not come back to paint any more <laughs> of them. Um, but they are fantastic models. I've got the, the big sword dudes. Mm. Um, and they are so dynamically posed I love dynamic poses which is why I'm uh, hoping to get um, some, uh, the Corvus uh, warband for, uh, uh, for Warcry. Warcry for Christmas hopefully um, because they're again it's like the dynamic poses just in motion and kind of taking off or landing or mm. preparing a strike um, and the I really love the, the poses of the uh, Ideneth Deepkin infantry for that stuff uh, I'm not sure like how viable they are really as, as units or how good they are in the game but 
I just want a big infantry army of Ideneth. For some reason, part of me just wants that. Uh, and the, 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 um, the bow and arrow version of the unit is also excellent. Yeah. I really want to really, really well. those models. Yeah, those models are just spectacular. I think something I've realised over the last, like, eight months is, is that, and, uh, you know, this, these games are ultimately a toolbox. Hmm. And we can maybe get into talking about competitive play in other contexts, but, like, just because something isn't optimal doesn't mean it's not going to be fun to play. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we get around to talking about Warcry, which we'll get to in more detail because it's what we've been playing, mm. like, I think, and this is a bit of a supposition, but from everything that he's written and, and the games that he's made, Jervis Johnson wants you, I think, to treat games as a scenario to unpick, not a game of chess to win. Yes. And so I think, I think Warcry deliberately fights balance in some interesting ways mm. that we should get to, but, um, AOS does too. Yeah. Like, you know, the, uh, the open play army generator stuff from the latest general's handbook, which would have been news if we had recorded a podcast <laughs> at the time, but it's a long time ago now. But all of that stuff is about like, yeah, you're going to draw cards and, and generate an army or an objective or something that you are going to struggle to achieve. Um, and I have friends who are in different contexts and different games when if you draw the twist card or the open play, you know, layout card and it looks like it's not going to be winnable for one side or it's going to be hard for mm. one side, uh, put it back in the deck and draw a different one. Mm. But I have become more and more keen on those moments because I think, and it, I, I've said this before, but like, I think that the key to being good at Warhammer is being good at losing mm. and enjoying losing. And it's probably the key to life, to be honest. Um, and, and, and enjoying the experience that comes from a situation that feels impossible mm. or where, you know, like one player, like, I don't want to, you know, not articulate this well. There's always drama there. And it's actually more interesting when it's not even. Yeah. Right. Like if you are, if you wonder if the scenario generation or whatever it is, or the army composition gives you a huge advantage, it means all the more if you lose. So yeah, if you smash your opponent, maybe you don't earn as much, but you've got to be really on the look for just in case. You never just know. in case because if you, you lose, know. holy shit, that's you a great story. Messed up, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So I think about this when supporting teams. Uh, the uh, sports teams I support tend to do very poorly. Mm-hmm. So I, I follow Aston Villa and the Atlanta Falcons in American football, and they have not had good seasons. But I still watch their games because you think even if Aston Villa play Manchester United or mm-hmm. Liverpool, who have been amazing this season, you think well just might happen there's more drama to the trying yeah. more drama to watching like you might just sneak one in and you never know then suddenly the game's changed and uh, yeah it's, it, it, that applies to war games as well I think it really does like you know having that army like I you know if you want that infantry heavy Adneth army mm. even though the, cur- the current book says eels for days yes um, uh, then go for it because mm. you're going to have fun games yeah like as long as yeah, as long as you can have fun losing mm. which you know, or like, and, and sometimes you'll win and those wins will feel even better. Yeah, that's true. You know, like sometimes you'll play against someone who's got a really optimized build and they might beat you, hmm. but you went up against them. Like I had this London GT, like, like I say, I was the only non-change host there. Yeah. I was the only person with Kyrak Acolytes or Zangor or Mortal Heroes or any of that stuff. Hmm. And I went, I think I went two and three, but like, you know, place mid table, but like I won some games. Yeah. Like I beat a change host. Nice. Like I had a Zinch mirror match. <laughs> that's awesome. And, um, uh, beat them quite heavily because I knew it well enough to know what its weaknesses were. Right. But also it's like change host doesn't really like 
having an army that's as good at casting as it is mm. with 30 Zangord <laughs> like running like yes. I don't really care where you swap to <laughs> like, yeah yeah, they'll get you like because I think it was knife to the heart as well so it was, oh, like, gosh, right. it was like you can dance around swapping things but stop this yeah like yeah. you know yeah. that's uh, I, I love infantry heavy armies me I, too I, I kind of I, I, I like just pushing giant blocks of units around I, I should probably like collect death for that reason mm. so, like, uh, our friend Chimp like he loves to push giant units of skeletons around and it's, it always looks amazing like yeah. a, a horde of skeletons just looks fantastic on the table and they're, they're not difficult to paint but they always come out well and th- th- that's why I want to see armies clashing uh, um, in the early days of AOS when there were, almost were no rules it was always like an army of five heroes and nothing else um, yeah. whereas now it feels like you're seeing proper armies with the, there's just enough incentive to take infantry blocks mm-hmm. uh, to keep armies looking cool and looking like proper armies yeah and there, there's still other sort of monster mash builds and things that have these sort of limited or like limited model counts yeah. but one thing I think is neat and that I've come around to quite a lot is that you know I actually I can see the appeal of, of competitive AOS and my next project is going to be a relatively competitive build for like next year's events because I want to go do them and I actually I want to build an army that feels cool to me and that I like but I don't want to completely be ignorant of competitive ideas sure um and I want to kind of enter and compete in that space. And so I kind of get the the mindset that is build the really competitive thing, paint it to a decent standard and go out and play with it. Like that's perfectly yeah, reasonable. Perfect. Um, but I also think if you want to go in with like a cool aesthetic, do that. Mm. Like the only thing stopping you from enjoying it is you really like the only issue that arises when people want to have the army they want, but they also want to win all the games. Yeah. And that's never going to be the case. No, you've got to build to the meta, I suppose. Yeah, you know, if you want to, if you yeah. want to. Yeah. But just pick which part you value. Yeah, right, right. Like, you know, all of my games at London GT were super cool. I felt super themey. Mm. Like, took on a massive um, Sylvaneth army with loads of Kernoth Hunters, and it was really tough and mm. it was kind of exciting. And, you know, um, Nighthaunt and Zinch, and I can't remember where the matchups were now because it was that long ago. But, you know what I mean? You have all these battles, and you're like, played against the Slanesh army with like 40 Chaos Knights it was nuts wow. it was like it was cool it was like yeah it's amazing to see what people put together isn't it yeah especially on the kind of mid tables because people are bringing in their kind of fluffier stuff mm. uh, so I mean, at the doubles uh, we played against uh, an army that was kind of um, it was Fire Slayers and Seraphim and it's like the most colourful table you've ever seen because the, the Seraphim you can paint it like they're so beautifully bright and colourful and then these dwarves with the bright red hair and stuff and it's just mm. an amazing looking table and I'd never think to collect, put those armies together or to collect each of them really but you get the opportunity at these tournaments to see what other people's hobby is what they yeah. put their time into as well. we had a, a part of the doubles at London GT um, including a game against a really min-maxed doubles list right it was Nurgle and Bone Splitters okay finding a because I think there was like a loophole or something where you could apply uh, certain certain buffs in the Nurgle book because it was written quite a long time ago right like friendly Bones. units whereas uh, now if it was written it would be keyworded Nurgle more or yeah. Nurgle Demon or whatever classic yeah so they were giving loads of like the Nurgle exploding wounds buffs to Bone Splitters archers so it was like 400 Oof. shots sixes do two mortal wounds and split into extra hits kind oh, of thing funny. yeah right right um, and so and I was playing my kind of themey doubles list which is my soul blight vampires and flashy decords yeah um, 
And so for the theme that we went for, like my, uh, the idea that I came up with for my soul blight is that it's like, it's almost like a kind of monastic order, like almost like, um, like a kind of mirror darkly sisters of battle kind of thing. Cool. Like blood nuns, basically. <laughs> right, right. But the notion is that they, what they practice is being resistant to the curse of vampirism. So not drinking. So, you know, the sisters of silence masks. Yeah. Yeah. They're, I've painted them like muzzles. Awesome. So they're like muzzled vampires mm. while they're blood knights. So while they're still blood knights, they wear these muzzles. Um, and they sort of deny themselves the first mm. until after the battle. Um, if they succumb in the battle, they become vargeists, like these kind of right, yes. beasts that like they've given in, mm. who are still then ushered out in front of the army as this chaff. Mm. And if they can show this sort of resistance to the curse and kind of master their thirst and all the rest of it, then they ascend and become like um, the sort of vampire lords, um, the sort of matriarchs sat on the throne, the coven throne, like right, drinking yeah. wine from a, a goblet. Got it, yeah. And so the whole thing is twisted because it's like it is a control mechanism. Like it's mm. restraint. It has a purpose. It's also a curse. It's, you know, it's all the rest of the stuff. But they're accompanied by these flesh eater courts and, and my friend Matt of Hipster Hammer has done his up, like his, um, I forgot what the ghoul hero is called. Uh, courtier, the, the, the cool right, courtier. Yeah. It's done up like a little town mayor. It's running around <laughs> a little, little bell. And, and so it's like this little sort of, you know, procession of like local village idiots. And like the fancy ladies have come to town. Yeah. And so we're going to follow them around. <laughs> and we were up against this like, we're going to, we're going to shoot you. We're going to have one shooting phase and destroy your entire army. Right, yeah. Like Death Star thing. And we had this amazing game where, um, we, we got like a, we, they got the first turn and they just whiffed all their shooting. Yes. It was like 400 shots and they just didn't roll yes. very well. And then we had this amazing thing where I have like swift death vampires that can fly. Mm. And so we had this incredible turn where like just suddenly like all these vampire blood knights just sort of like teleport forwards. Yeah. Like riding over the first line of chaff straight into the second line. Amazing, amazing. Like these huge charges and pylons. And we destroyed like, cause, and it, cause it was, they, what they did is they put lines, like board wide lines of, um, plague bearers yeah. in front of lines of arrow boys. Sure. So you to don't prevent the charge, right? Yeah, to prevent the charge. But I was skipping the charge and like slaughtering like 30 arrow boys oh, like, like vampires. We lost really badly. <laughs> but it was Great amazing moments. for that moment because yeah. it was like, it was completely suboptimal mm. versus like, it was theme for days versus mm. the finally honed. Yeah, finally honed, you know, really, found a new pole, you yeah. know, clever, clever combo. Like the first game we had, involved in because for this doubles you did two 800 point armies hmm. and one pair managed to run Kairos and Scarbrand <laughs> oh my god that's hilarious <laughs> so um, uh, Scarbrand that was our first game I think and Scarbrand piled into some blood knights and automatically did 16 mortal wounds and oh, killed the entire unit god. because Kairos is there so Kairos has a once game ability to change any dice to any other value yeah. so he you know it's like the ultimate lord of change and the ultimate bloodthirster just blimey killing everything and it was just like oh yeah so in one turn he did 16 mortal wounds killed the entire unit of blood knights then piled in and killed the vampire lord, and it was just over. It was like, okay, that's it. Yeah, must have looked amazing. Though. Although in that game, Scarbrand got killed. He got bitten by a vampire queen. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so on the, co- the coven throne, killed him. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, just like eh. like they have like one bite attack, and it's like eh, dead. What, what are even the logistics of that? <laughs> no, the coven throne is a massive. She had to, she had to lean out. Yeah. The coven throne, for, for avoidance of doubt, is a big bone throne. It's fucking great. Being carried by an entire regiment of ghostly knights. Yes, uh, yeah. with three women on it who are enjoying a big punch bowl. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of my favourite models. It's great. 
because uh, I've seen chimps as well. Like you can build them in a few different ways, um, but the, the fundamental I, the, the the sculpts that are these kind of horse riders mm. lifting this kind of ridiculously over the top bone structure on their on their shoulders is just fantastic. I can't believe I painted that three fargeists and six blood knights in a week. Yeah, that's that's a good hobby. That's yeah, a good hobby. It was nuts. It was right. It was the week after we moved in as well. Oh blimey! <laughs> Maybe it was a kind of valve. I'm still not sure. Pip's forgiven me. <laughs> <laughs> was it hard to put together that that um, the the, the kit? Hmm. Um, I did some sort of assemblies. Um, it, it's not, it's not terrible. Like, uh, it wasn't f- too fiddly. It's sort of, it's a lot. Like, it's a, you know, a good hour of following the instructions. Yeah. But it, yeah. it goes together relatively straightforwardly, yeah, I good. thought. That's like, good. cause it looks like a complicated one. Yeah. Like, I think it was relatively easy because I was, the, the Vargas were super easy because they're just all what they are. Mm. But because I was converting all the, all of the Blood Knights, yeah, like, that was, they're all kit bashed. That was the real time consuming part. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, man, what are we talking about? This tournament's been good. Yeah, I can't remember. What oh no! Oh, about. it was it was about Ideneth. It was about um, oh extra projects and stuff yeah, and stuff. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. What to, I, I'm wondering because I've not seen a release that's really inspired me. Um, we should talk about the Osiark bone mm. readers, actually, because um, they have the models that entice me the most. Yeah, um, and I'd like to particularly talk about the um, the hero model. Which Catacross. Catacross. More talk of the Necropolis. And uh, it, it marks a kind of, for me, a change in the way that Games Workshop are, tr- are approaching some hero models, mm. where it's not just the hero on a base, it's uh, it's a scene. It's a diorama. It's a yeah. diorama that you move across the board. And uh, this is kind of an interesting shift. I think it works brilliantly for that model, because mm. uh, it, the rules are great as well, apparently. He, uh, you, you kind of... He, he deigns not to attack... Uh, until his thralls are all being killed, like yeah, and then he fucks everyone up. Then, he, yeah. then he, like he, when he finally steps down the kind of marble steps and uses his sword, he's amazing. Which is, and the model perfectly reflects that. Like he's completely imperious and looks like invulnerable and you mm. know, um, uncaring. But it's a whole scene. Like all his uh, thralls are around him as part of the the model, which is. I, I really, really like it. I think it's a nice way to move for certain models. It's yeah. a really nice way to depict their power. They've just done that again for Sisters of Battle. Did you see That's the right. procession of St. Catherine? Yeah, I was going to mention um, that as well. Yeah. yeah. So they, they don't, I love, If they did it for all models, all hero models, I wouldn't be into it. But for certain things, like for certain ideas, uh, yeah. it's a really nice move. I really, really like it. Really like that range, the OCR bow range. Yeah, we should probably talk about that. Like, Obviously, we're not doing news, but that's... Um, you know, one of this year's big new additions to Age of Sigmar is yes. the existence of the OCR Bone Reapers, who are essentially Nagash's Stormcast. Yeah. They're lots of different, but the difference is they're lots of souls crammed into one <laughs> body. Yeah. Um, they've even got like, uh, Dracoths, like undead mm. Dracoths and stuff like that, which is rad. Uh, yeah. They're, they're kind of, um, they feel like AOS's version of Tomb Kings to me. They're, mm. they're not quite Egyptian themed, but there's, there's similar kind of geometry to them, I think, in, the, in yeah. their, their iconic, uh, their, their icons, iconography, mm. yeah. Um, which kind of reminds me of the silhouettes of the, the old range. Um, but without just being, oh, this is ancient Egypt, it's actually AOS. What's kind of wild is they're also basically fantasy Necrons. And yes, Necrons right. were already sci-fi skeletons. So, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so one giant circle. Yeah. Uh, they look great though, I really like them. Um, I think, I'm looking forward to seeing what people do with different colour schemes than mm. the one that Games Workshop particularly chose. Because I think they could look 
they could benefit from maybe like lighter colour schemes than just was it dark blue and I have a, a friend who put it this way they suffer a lot they suffered a lot from um box art syndrome where mm. there's like a standard colour scheme for them which is not that inspiring yes but some of the alternate ones that are tied to particular legions and things are really cool great yeah yeah. I bet, I bet they look great on tabletop as well I've not actually seen them in, in person um, yeah they do they're quite they, they're quite retro in a way yeah like they're the they're standard infantry is on 25mm base mm. so they're a little bit smaller um, they rank up really nicely and they are kind of designed to they're very disciplined skeleton hordes yes. so they, they're designed to rank up they look like they could have been fantasy battle models mm. actually mm. yeah it's a really nice range but in a good way it's kind of that came all of a sudden as well like I wasn't expecting like more death yeah. new death and suddenly it was like oh my gosh got all these new models all of a sudden and they're really really good like I'd still love to have a death army I've been saying this for years on this podcast <laughs> um, but I'd probably start with the Bone Reapers and start with the, the, their regiments I can see that suiting you actually because it's a very strategic army as well like, yeah big blocks of infantry as well and a bit of magic yeah bit of magic bit of magic I'm into that some big sort of fucked up turtle dudes <laughs> right yeah I don't know what's going on with those guys <laughs> yeah. yeah they're pretty weird um yeah no I, I was really sorely tempted by them and actually like almost sort of swayed by that temptation mm. but then the entire Christmas release schedule leaked <laughs> and it leaked very convincingly mm. um and then it proved to be true because the first initial wave of things were true uh which was the thing that kind of gave the game away that A Slave to Darkness update was coming so yeah, I, I held, held fire that. yeah uh, we should talk about Sisters of Battle as well. Oh shit! Yeah, that came out. That came out. They finally released Sisters of Battle. And they look fucking amazing. Yeah. <laughs> really well, so the the multi-part kits and the tanks and things are all coming in the new year, right? Yes. Yeah. And finally, the um, the pipe organ artillery piece returns. So it's one of my favourite models. Cool. Yeah. It is. It's so right. Like the sisters are such zealots that they would build something like that. They just would. Yeah. Uh, and it really fits in with the rest of like the procession as well. Mm. Oh, I just. Oh, I love the Sisters of Battle, they're great. Yeah, I think I've got a kill team in me, maybe. Mm, like, I, I yes. kept being tempted but not wanting to over-invest, and that's what skirmish games are for. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Yeah, I love the Cannon S models. I think uh, I've got a buy box of them just to paint them up and just own them, really. Mm. Got to own the Cannon S. Yep, got to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great sculpts. Uh, great job with a much-loved range. Great to see them back in plastic as well. Yeah, man, there's, there's been a lot of good stuff this year like I mean we barely touched on Beast Grave but right. they made a lot of cool base changes to the Underworld rules yeah, that fam- all work really well I'm not familiar with this actually um, I, so a lot of it's kind of granular stuff that maybe we don't have time to get into but sure. we, could, we could play at some point but like um, it's little things like both players get deadly terrain to place at the start of games now ah. and um, you know, the, the sort of various action timings have been clarified and things have sort of been refined. And right. it feels like that game's maturing in a good way. Like, mm. it's now got a ban list, like, rotating... Like, um, the Shades Bias set has now been rotated out. Yes. So you can still use the war bands, but you can't use the cards. Right. Which is great, because it means that yeah. stuff that was overtuned initially is now gone, unless it came back in the gift pack, which happened recently. But, you know, like, that's a, you know... Magic the Gathering style has given them some control over that yeah, strategic sandbox, yes. and that's really good. Oh, man. It's, it's the game I most want to play with the time I don't have <laughs> <laughs> of any board game. Mm. Uh, Shades by is excellent. I loved it. Um, but keeping it with card meta, it just requires a kind of a, a level of attention I don't have. There are some good resources for that, mm. but... Um, but yeah, I know what you mean. Do you know what warband you would play if you were playing? Them? I don't know. I'd have to catch up with all of them. There's so many good ones now. Yeah, I mean, uh, the probably the Sylvaneth one 
Mm. Um, just again, great models, but I, I imagine the fa- fantasy of that Silver Nath Warband would be realised quite well in the rules. Um, yeah, there's also the Kunathi now as well, which is also a completely new race. Oh yeah, of course. Who come in the Beast Grave Core Pack? Huh. Yes, which are the um, sort of Fey kind of goat men. Right. Like, imagine a good beast man. <laughs> yes. Whom also into punk. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Um, oh, yeah, I've paid hardly any attention to Beef Grave. It just yeah. sort of came out in the background and uh, carried on. A friend of mine referred to it as Beef Gravy, and now I can never, oh, no. never, never imagine, never read the, it in any other way. The box is uh, kind of meaty red as well, so. It is, yeah. It's just delicious. Mm. Tasty. Beast men versus men beasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Who wins? Well. Everyone. Um, yeah, man. I'm trying to think what else has happened. Contrast happened. Contrast happened. We can only talk about contrast. Yes. Um, so you've been you've been dabbling with it for the Scutaria stuff, right? I have. Yes. Um, uh, I bought a load of kind of browns and reds stuff. I wanted to do a kind of John Blanche style, mm. uh, almost blotchiness on the on the cloaks, um, leave them deliberately a bit messy. So it's uh, it's, it's just been a, like they are so fun to apply. Something about the way that the base code slightly resists them. Like, so the idea of contrast, if you're not familiar, I'm sure you are, because it came out months and months ago. But they're supposed to be inks that go over yeah. a special undercoat and give you automatic highlights and lowlights, um, which is great for batch painting Skaven, for example, or Orcs, or any, any anything you want to do. But the consistency of them is so fascinating to me. Like, they they're like... They're inky, but they stay there mm. for you to play with for a little bit, and it takes a, like a little while for them to set—not long, but yeah. long enough yeah. for you to introduce other colours. And it's almost like watercolour; like mm. they blend into each other and make really yeah, interesting, exactly right. make interesting, um, just kind of intermediate colours where they clash. They, they don't pool separately like oil; they, they just mix a little bit, uh, and that's that's like a sort of potential there for kind of cool, interesting textured colours on cloaks mm. and, and that sort of thing I'm not sure I'd use them for a tank but for kind of flowing cloth and for hair and for skin and lots of kind of soft surfaces that seems to be amazing uh, have yeah. you been experimenting as well a lot like contrast has completely changed the way I paint right like, completely changed the way I paint mm. and um, so I have gone, gone through quite a lot since we last recorded the podcast because the last thing I'd done when we recorded the podcast was some was my blood letters yeah. since then I did test Warriors test models for demonettes. I did a Gene Steeler cult model for a painting competition. Did a bunch of different things. Um, <clears throat> and then contrast happened. And contrast was, was initially kind of weird for me because I had been going towards that way of painting for a while. It's one of the reasons I've been advocating metallic base coats and things because yeah. they take wash as well. Hmm. Um, and, but also like it sort of flips the script on certain things. So, um, Gribbly detail becomes easier than flat panels. Mm. Um, so, which is great for me because I'm the man who lives in Gribbleland. Yes. Um, but also meant I'm learning certain things. And then I started, started playing with it. And, and that first weekend I was playing with it, I remember, I realized that like I painted a couple of Blood Warriors and a, sorry, a couple of uh, Blood Reavers and a couple of Karakakalites in minutes compared to how long it would normally yeah, take. Me. Gosh. But also I painted Pious Fawn from the Blackstone set, who is still, I think, my favorite model I've ever painted. Awesome. Like I used a lot of mixing and then, so, but then I applied like traditional highlights and painting over the top. And that combo worked really, really well. Like mm. I'm more proud of that model. I think like I think it's as close as I've gotten to what the box looks like. Cause Amazing. I will never get. Yeah. Or as that I have gotten so far. 
And over time, this coalesced into theory. Like, I, I mean, one of the benefits I think of having had some time since the last time we recorded this is this has now become like a universal theory of how to use Conquest properly. Mm. And so yesterday I painted two Chaos Warriors and I'm really pleased with how they came out. And I, without overblowing it, I don't think they look like I did them both in a single sitting. No. Um, and I've got some tricks so I can, I can do some tips for this, which yeah. will hopefully be useful to people. So there's a few things. One is um, a few principles and then I can apply it to a method. One, um, contrast replaces your need for metal base paints. Right. Um, whether you start from a, uh, whichever of the contrast sprays you start with, you can make almost any tone, metal tone you want off lead belcher. Right. Lead belcher has very good coverage. Mm. A lot of the other metal paints don't. Retributor armor also does have good coverage. Yeah. Between those two, you can create any metal effect you want, whether it's green metal, red metal, gold. You can create gold from lead belcher with contrast over metal. Huh. Right. Right. Um, so a lot of, you know, so a lot of those fiddly metallic base paints, you might still need the other metallics for highlights and things, but those ones, you probably don't need them anymore. Hmm. The other principle, um, contrast loves a wink. Right. Contrast loves a wink more than uh, anything. Interesting. Um, contrast gets you more or less to the point where you've done a layer, a base coat, and in some cases, the first sort of soft highlight. Um, it gets you to the point where sometimes all you need is a wink, and it looks like you mastered the whole thing. Right. Um, sometimes you need a little bit more than that. Often, you need one line highlight and a wink, and stuff looks as good as you ever painted it. Mm. Wow. Which is really good. The other thing is, contrast really pops off its own base paints. So, mm. Wraithbone or Gracier, and it gets increasingly dull off other colors. Um, which is, you would think, a problem, but it's actually an advantage. Um, and so what I've, what I've started doing is everything I paint now gets a Zenithal prime. Right. So what this means is essentially priming that reflects the lighting. So the way I paint everything now, so I have a standard method now, which I did for these Chaos Warriors yesterday. I took some photos so I could put this in the show notes. Um, start off, spray them all black completely, you know, so all angles. Yeah. And then when that's dry, spray it. I, or I use Grace here almost for everything. Right. Like I prefer it to Wraithbone, but this is depending on what you're trying to achieve. I use Grace here. Um, you pray, spray Grace here from above, and then you spray Grace here around at about a 60 degree angle spraying down so daylight angle down on the model yeah sure and you have to use some judgment at this point like where it's going to need slightly more and where it's going to need slightly less generally the face you want to make sure you're catching the face weapon key areas of the yeah model. sure then when you've got this Zenithal prime, what this will give you is a model that has these sort of bright prime there's the, the white gracier primer on the most of it the raised visible areas but its darkest areas are in, are black or or a kind of stippled kind of gradient yeah. from grey to black. If it's a big model, it's worth spraying Mechanicus Grey as a middle step with a slightly lower angle. Okay. So you do a three-stage Xenophil, basically. Yeah. What this um, uh, means in practice is that when you apply contrast to those areas, it will become dull as it goes into recesses yeah, sure. or into areas that your eye will naturally catch. And this in turn means that you don't have to worry as much about sub-assemblies mm. because as long as you can get some paint in there, it doesn't really matter what the color is. It will fade naturally out of view. Yeah. Um, so I uh, I will get to this, but I really recommend gray contrast as a way of filling in 
lower areas of models that you'll never see. Yeah. Because it creates light and dark and shade and highlight, but you'll never see the colours because it's getting duller, which is actually a sure. real advantage. So it auto blends almost. Yeah, almost. Or it just, it just reflects how light actually works. Right. Whereas in the dark, colour becomes less dramatic. Yeah. The weakness of contrast, actually, I think, is most apparent when you spray a model entirely with the grey or, or with the bright primers. Right. Because um, it means... Because contrast really pops. A lot of it really pops. And it means every part of the model really pops, which means that any pooling or kind of um, ugliness or tide marks that can arise from using a wash mm. really stand out wherever they fall. Yeah. With a xenothal spray, you're only going to get that really poppy contrast in the areas where you actually want it, which is a huge advantage. Mm. Um, so what I tend to do... So I do the xenothal spray... Then I block in any, all of the metallic areas with lead belcher. So take the model and you paint every metallic part with lead belcher. And this is often the most difficult bit because if you are not doing a sub-assembly, this is where you've got to be reaching into little details yeah. to find everything. So you end up, end up with a model which is xenothal, white and black, basically, and metal. And then you block in all the colors with contrast. And sometimes you're going to blend things, sometimes you're not. You block in all of the colors. And then you've got basically a painted model. Mm. Like this is basically the step I got my Blood Knights to when I was speed painting them. Yeah. At that point, I put the texture paint on, wash the texture paint, um, hit it with Munitorum varnish, which is the matte varnish. Okay. Contrast kind of needs varnish because mm. it doesn't sit as heavily on the model, so it can rub off. Right. Um, and then you go in afterwards and do highlights and finish off. And then often it's just two color highlights. So... And you can afford to do quite aggressive highlights. The contrast does a lot of the work for you, so you, can, you don't have to do the next step up. You can probably go a bit further. Yeah. And I have always been slightly trepidatious about having big enough winks, you know, to really make that horse ass shine. Yes. Um, but actually, you can go quite far with it. And the the, the Chaos Warriors I did yesterday is an example of this. Like, Fantastic. Really making it pop. And it's amazing how quick that is. Huh. Like, and it looks pretty good, particularly for line like for line infantry. It's really quick. And they look like you spent far more time on the right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really, really works nicely. Um, the other, the other things that I have determined that really are good. One is um, black templar and basilicanum grey are your best friends because there's probably if you are struggling to get into a little detail behind a cape or something like that. Yeah. Um, just flush it. Uh, um, you know, flush it with grey and black, mm. and you'll never if you're never going to see it. It doesn't matter. And if you do see it, what you see is sort of shaded dark area, yeah. not the detail being missing or yeah, something sure. like that. Yeah. Even if you fail to base coat a bit of metal, like lead belcher goes on really nicely over Gracier. Hmm. You can almost apply it like a wash and it retains some of the underlying thing. It just gains this metallic sheen. Yeah. You be careful with that. But you don't even have to be that precise. And the you know contrast can... Ha- and if, if there's a little bit of it that isn't properly metallic, you won't notice. Yeah. The other thing is I have started... So I appreciate this is a complete brain dump, but I've had a long time to think about this. The other thing is I um, I bought these Tamir mixing pots, so oh, yeah. paint mixing pots hmm. for certain things. I use a particular mix of non oil and Drakenoff Nightshade for my bases. Right. Um, so I've made a, a pot of that so I don't have to mix it every time, yeah, which sure. is great. But um, one thing I get through quite a lot of is a 50-50 mix of contrast medium and basiliconum grey. Hmm. So basiliconum grey is not the most blue grey, but it's Griff Charger grey. Um, but it is a bluer grey than Nuln Oil, which is quite a brown grey. Yes. Or quite a brown black. Like yeah. you know. And I've started using um, basiliconum, like thin basiliconum grey instead of Nuln Oil. Hmm. 
And it creates this effect that it's much more kind of matte and painterly than normal oil tends to go. Yeah. Because normal oil tends to be grimy and kind of streaky. This also creates a kind of weathered look, but it's more like... Um, uh, it's more, it looks more like weathered metal than oily metal, which yeah. is what null null gets you, which makes sense. They both have their uses. I tend to use null null for weapons and 50-50 Basilicanum Grey for armor. Mm. But that stuff is a fucking lifesaver. Like, it goes over other things really well. Like, if you put, uh, if you put that over Black Templar, it evens out the Black Templar and helps black look better because mm. it adds a slightly blue, more, like, slightly colder tint to black right like there's all these things you can do with contrast that I think people are underestimating like how versatile it is sure but like I really like if you're unsure about how to use it I think one thing is having a pot of 50-50 basilicanum and medium is a really good way of almost solving any problem and I got experimental with it like I knew I wanted my blood knights to have like a lot of red on them but to feel cold yes so with those models, I Zenithol sprayed them and then covered the entire model in that 50-50 mix of Basilicanum Grey yeah. and Medium before doing anything else, which means that all of the other paints are built up from this sort of like mm. grayscale. At that point, they almost look like grayscale statues. It looked really cool. Yeah. But then, then when you add the single pop colors, they, they inherit some of that desaturation that happens with the previous step. Yeah, right. And I think a lot of the... A lot of the skill of using contrast properly is fighting its desire to be high contrast. Because hmm. ultimately, when you're painting a miniature, you don't want the whole thing no, to true. pop. You want to direct attention. and But you can use that to your advantage in interesting ways as well. Hmm. That's fascinating. Sorry, I've just blurred. No, that's really good advice. Yeah. Really, really useful. Uh, so I'm just experimenting with at the moment. Um, I've never experimented with Zenithal, hmm. uh, but that seems to be a good shortcut for... Was also highlighting things. It also highlights certain things. It tells you where to place your emphasis on a model. Mm. It also allows you to get away with not painting the parts of the model that are hard to get to, which allows you to avoid sub-assemblies, um, which allows you to save then less time. Yeah. And that, I think, is really, really important. So it's, you're probably not going to win a Golden Demon with this method, but I think it's helped me put together good-looking line troops relatively quickly and I use this method for heroes now as well I just spend more time on the subsequent steps yeah right so um, do you find much use for the medium is it just to dilute the, the consistency of the, the grey that you're using yeah so the grey is quite dark otherwise right I see like, so there are, there are a couple of contrast greys they're all too too strong a particular shade to use at, to use for this purpose out of the pot yeah but I use a lot of Black Templar undiluted Basilicanum and diluted Basilicanum to achieve effect so mm. um, uh, well actually so you, you mentioned earlier when we were playing Warcry that you wanted to know how I'd done the terrain yes yes um, so I painted in the last I, I painted everything from the Warcry starter set apart from the Untamed Beasts so I've done all the Chaos Beasts and the Iron Golem and all the terrain for the terrain I uh, used exactly this method. I Xenophil sprayed the terrain. Right. So it's actually lighter on the top uh, layers than the bottom, right. which is actually hard to tell now, but that's kind of the point. Yes. Like, um, it means that the undersides are kind of drab, but that's fine because you don't see the built you know, the insides of the buildings. Mm. They have enough detail that if you look, but they're in shadow naturally anyway. You're going to get them down yeah. and look at them really, yes. You know. Um, and then all of the stonework was washed with that 50-50 Pasolum Basilicanum. Because it... it it's clearly pooled, but you don't get the precise lines that you get with an ink. No. You know, that splotchiness that you get when you put too much ink on and it sort of like dries in the puddle. In yeah. The, in the recesses, yeah, it looks smooth. Yeah, like I think a certain amount of 
pooling actually works well for miniatures because, and that's probably heresy, but like in this context, um, you know, I like particularly for stuff like aged stonework. Yeah, sure. Like, you know, color is incon as long as it's not tide marks or you can see brush strokes or kind of where it's been lifted off the model or something like that. Yeah, right. Um, it creates areas of darkness that can be sort of natural looking from a tabletop distance. Yes. And when you dry brush over it as well, you can put streaks and things over it that kind of make sense. Yeah. And then I, I did other, like I did sort of very thin layers of green over the brickwork and things. So there's like a little bit of variance in the gray. Gotcha. But all of that gray stonework has a bit of blue and a bit of green in it just yeah. to kind of. It's all cold stuff yeah, as well. Yeah, cold like, lifted. But, but, but varied. It's not yeah. just like, yeah, yeah, I get you. Good. And so like, that big Sigma head you get in that box oh, yeah. is like a big chunk of jade. Mm. And that color is on the other buildings as well, but it's much, much thinner. Yeah, right, right. <clears throat> it looks fantastic. I love the train. Um, we had a great game of Walker over that. And it sits beautifully on the, the mat so that you... Not, it's not a mat, it's, it's, kind it's of a like cardboard card. yeah. uh, kind of... Play battles, area. Battle yeah. play area, which is awesome. Yeah. But no, like, I've, I think it's, re- it's possible to get really good, consistent results with... with um, with contrast, so like if you look in the the cabinets, you're at the Karak acolytes are all done. Oh yeah, um, they're all contrast. Oh right, which like shows. I think one thing is when I say it really loves a wink, it really loves highlights. Hmm. Like when, as soon as you highlight it, it doesn't look like it was done with contrast anymore. Yeah, that's like, fantastic. Yeah, really worth taking the time. Have you used it for many flesh tones? That seems like a good use for it. Yeah, it, it does work really well for flesh tones. In fact, um, Cygor Brown is a really good um, like black skin tone right. actually um, in fact I kind of wish they hadn't called it Cygore Brown for that reason mm-hmm. um, but yeah there's you can get four really um, solid human skin tones out of the pot yeah with the four Dark Earth Flesh Gilliman Flesh Fire Slayer Flesh and, and Cygore Brown mm. um, and then yeah and it's sort of like they still benefit from that second highlight pass but it's basically done in one yeah right these topless models are really really easy yeah I might get involved with those for my because uh, it takes it can take a long time to make flesh mm. it's, a, it's a difficult there's just bulbous shapes and finding where the highlights should go on them yeah doing it manually is very difficult very nice if uh, you can get an ink that will just sort of guide you almost to where those light areas should be yeah right helps with like um, I'll I'll show you after we're recording but I did that xenophile with some um, blood reavers right and it's interesting because it, it dramatically cools the the flesh tone mm. in the shadows, but that is the effect that I would have been doing manually previously. Sure. Because with skin, you tend to want to have warm highlights or even sorry, even warm shades, like warm shadows in raised areas or areas where the mus- musculature would define somewhere that's getting a lot of blood. So like right. shoulder muscles, things like that, or like a warm shadow, because it's you know it's hot flesh basically mm. and then armpits and the bottom of someone's abs inner thighs those sorts of areas knees back to the knees you're going to want a cold shadow mm. um, to kind of reflect the fact that the sort of the power in the body is, is located in particular places yeah. and a xenothal spray can really help you actually get there naturally mm. because contrast tends to go colder when it hits a grey or a black mm. what did you turn away from the bone as opposed to the, the grey um, personally I because I I think well, one thing is that my basing scheme is cold for a lot, of, like the kind of dark blue bases that I do for almost everything. Yeah. Um, and so the bone wasn't looking quite right against it. It's very warm. I think if you're doing a desert base or something, then you might go for the bone base, base yeah, spray. Yeah. 
The other reason is I find things tend to be even brighter off the Wraithbone spray. Yeah, that seems right. And I think a lot of my contrast time has been spent, like I say, um, trying to rein in its tendency to really pop. Like, you want it to mostly pop, but you don't. I mean, you can you can get a perfectly good looking army out of the door just by swapping contrast over a very bright base coat, but it's not going to hide any issues, and that's kind of the point. Yeah, like, um, in fact, that's probably the weakness of contrast is it exposes every flaw in the model. Mm. It exposes everything you haven't painted in properly. It exposes uh, every area where you haven't filed down a mold line or filled a gap. If you can hide that stuff, that's when you gain the real efficiency because you're not then having to do those things yeah because the paint job is hiding it like I say not what you would do if you were trying to win Golden Demon but mm. most yeah. people aren't and so Absolutely. yeah yeah, yeah. Man. what a great range it's really good surprise as well it's yeah like, like obviously they've teased it but I think on the last episode it, there are probably going to be some people who listened to the last episode and now straight onto this one because they weren't listening previously yeah um, for whom us going from like what could they possibly be announcing I bet it's not just some ink <laughs> to this it's yeah. going to be an interesting switcheroo but yeah, yeah sure, it sure. was just some ink basically it was some ink speaking of new releases there's been um, Saves to Darkness yesterday yeah this is your Fever dream. You all have a fever dream, Chris. It, yeah, it did happen. And like I said, I was really glad that this leaked so that, that I didn't get drawn into the legions of the Bone Reapers in the meantime. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, so long awaited. It's, it's confirmed a few things and denied a few others. So Dark Oath isn't a thing. No. Like, as a faction. Not. Like, mm. um, it's those two heroes and, and that's actually, I'm cool with it. Yeah. Like, it's nice to, more than anything else, it's nice to know. Yes. I've been feeling about a lot of things recently. <laughs> Something good, some bad, either way. Nice yes. to have the uncertainty removed. Yes. Um, so, yeah, as of yesterday, at the time of recording, uh, Safe to Darkness now has a battle tome, uh, and uh, for the first time since AOS was a thing. Yes. Um, outside of the General's Handbooks. And, uh, and they, uh, they have endless spells. Mm. They don't have terrain, which I'm actually really happy about. Yeah. Um, and they got some new models as well. So they got, um, Chaos Warriors, Chaos Knights, and a new character, the Lord on Karkadrak. Karkadrak? Karkadrak. What's that? A Karkadrak? Karkadrak. You haven't seen a Karkadrak? Never in my life. Hang on. This will be bad audio, but bear with me for just a second. <laughs> Chris is turning away. He's going over to his desk. He's picking up some boxes. It's a multitude of hobby, uh, brightly lit by a... A lamp and there's a large box coming over. It's very large, and Look it at is. This. Start collecting slave to darkness. Oh, it's some kind of dino horse. It's a perfectly ordinary horse, Tom. It's a kind of toad-like dino horse. It's a carcadrack. It's a carcadrack. It's a carcadrack. You know what? They've got perfectly normal horses in this box. So this is the thing. In the age of Sigma, Slaves to Darkness are probably the remaining premier employer of normal horses. The, the horses turned to chaos. Yeah. Why did the horses so turn to chaos? the real path to glory is the path to glory that horses go on. <laughs> I see. Right? Because yeah, yeah. no no faction embodies the journey a horse can go on. Hmm. Uh, this is the, my, my promise to you <laughs> than Slaves to Darkness, right. which runs the full gamut from the literally normal horses ridden by Marauder Horsemen hmm. to Dorgar, Archeon's mount, who literally used to be a horse Was once. and is now three different greater demons strapped to a dragon. Yeah, that's true. A horse could right. become anything. Every other faction has gone on their journey of like, oh, well, we ride chickens, or we ride lizards, or we, you know, we ride eels, or whatever. Mm. No, Slaves to Darkness are on the whole range, from ordinary horse 
to Ordinary Horse with the cool hat on, to, oh, yes. oh God, the van, whatever the fuck's going on with Varangard, to um, the Karkadrak, the sort of happy dinosaur. I've heard someone describe it as a um, baby crusher. Yeah, he's got a big smile on his face as yeah. well, which is quite endearing. Happy in the way that geckos can be happy. <laughs> right, yes. Um, uh, yeah, to, um, to Dorgard, the most ordinary horse there is. Um, <laughs> it's a good box that it's a good box so I want to talk about this um, the safe, the start collecting safe to darkness because it is kind of unprecedented and something that's been happening in GW recently is um, start collecting boxes becoming start collecting boxes rather than just keep buying this over and over again boxes <laughs> right yes so like the start collecting thousand suns they did that has RM in it mm. a model you will never want more than one of yeah 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 um, this is a really interesting thing so start collecting slaves to darkness is the first time a start, uh, a start collecting box has come out before the models that are in it. Right. Let alone is all new models. Huh. So... Good uh, point, yeah. Yeah, so it's all new models, uh, including new sculpts of Chaos Warriors and Chaos Knights, this new hero, and they are not only monoposed, they're push-fit. Huh. They're like um, uh, Underworld's warbands. Right. They are glueless. Huh. Um, so so I so part of me wonders if there's a AOS starter kit that didn't happen mm. because this really feels like half of one. Yeah, right. Like maybe there's a parallel universe where we were going to get a new Stormcast chamber this year. Yes. In a box, a battle box with these guys, mm. and it didn't happen. Interesting. Or this is, I mean, this is complete theory craft. But earlier this year they did something kind of weird where um, OCR Bone Reapers um, were the first their first re- release. <coughs> was in a box against ogres. Right, yes. Yeah, Feast of Bones. Yeah, yeah. And that was a load of older ogre models with one new model, the Tyrant, yes. versus an entire new range. And they'd never really done this before, like release not only a new model, but a new faction in a box that came with a different faction. Yeah, yeah. In the actual fiction of the game, uh, Catacross, that great diorama model, he is invading the all points, all the eight points, uh, to take on Archeon directly. Mm. And so part of me just has this weird back of my mind thing of like did they originally plan for Bone Reapers to debut in a box against Slaves to Darkness right because that would have actually fit with how this has ended up happening mm, yeah. regardless we've got this new box which is like I say push fit monopose models um, to fit into the existing range and there is no evidence that these are going to get multi-pose variants Right, interesting. So they will exist alongside the current Chaos Warriors and Chaos Knights yeah and notably and I was really nervous about this because I have a bunch of those other models. Um, they do actually, they are actually the same size. Good. So the only difference is the reason they look better, honestly, is they have much smaller heads than the old Chaos Warriors. Right, more in proportion. Yeah, yeah well, it's just a different proportions. Like Warhammer Fantasy Battle proportions tended to be quite dinky, mm. like big heads, small bodies. Yeah. Kind of thing. AOS has pushed that more towards, even as models have gotten bigger. It's pushed towards these heroic proportions where we've got big torsos, yeah, sure. smaller heads. Uh, the good news is if you are collecting Slaves of Darkness, um, that sprue, um, the, there's one sprue for those 10 warriors that come in that box, but it has 17 heads, wow. which is really nice. Yeah. Because it's got bare head variants, some really good stuff in there. Um, there's a whole bunch of female heads as well as male heads, cool. um, which is great. Like loads of new, you know, easy to kit bash female chaos characters yeah, now because you've got right. loads of heads. Great that they're doing that. Yeah. And it's great that the service doesn't really matter what the body is because people in plate armor. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, this is the thing that they've definitely responded to the community. Uh, yeah. Because it's been 
people have been asking for it for years, and this year they've really obviously they're on a kind of delay because of the, the print schedules for mm. uh, miniatures are always going to be on a big delay. But the, 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 it's really coming through now that you get that choice of heads in a lot of different kits, which is lovely to see. You know, they've done a great job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my my tip is, I was really lucky because I had started batch painting Chaos Warriors in insane in hindsight sub assemblies, mm. and I was keeping the heads separate. And I'm really glad I did, because if you use those spare heads from the monopose sprue on old warriors, it brings them into scale really nice. Nice. Cool. So that's, you know, the, the two that you were just looking at, Tom. Yeah, that's that, right. That on my desk. That's a old, one of them is one of the new warriors, one of them is one of the old warriors, but with a new head. Yeah, it looks, it looks like it could be part of the same kit, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. They and, and definitely in a unit, they'll mix in really nicely. Yeah, so yeah. They're, they're more dynamic, but that means that some of them are standing, you know, regimented and some of them are doing a pose. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so they've gotten an update and they've gotten a book and I've read the book now and there's a few things that have happened recently that I really, really support. One is, which is true of both this and Cities of Sigma, mm. is getting Black Library authors directly involved in Battle Tomes, which uh, yeah. is not... Previously, those two things have been separate. Mm. Um, so Josh Reynolds, who's written, I think, most of the best uh, AOS sort of Cities of Order stuff. Yeah. Through like the Eight Lamentations books and things like that, um, wrote a load of short stories for the Cities of Sigma book. And I bought Cities of Sigma book for that reason, mm. like just for the short stories. And yeah, the fiction. fantastic. Um, and I think this is a, this was a great choice uh, for Slaves to Darkness. They got Aaron Dembski bowden um, who has never actually written AOS before. He's always written 40K, but mm. he wrote the Black Legion novels for 40K, right. which are great. Um, I've read a bunch of them in the time since we last recorded. And those are some of the best. Uh, his, he's really good at talking about Warhammer as if it's happening around you mm. um, in a lot of different contexts including when he's talking about space marines and things like that but also he's specifically good at making you know, putting a human applying a human experience to chaos like I wasn't I didn't really like Abaddon until his right. presentation of Abaddon uh-huh. I think right. um, and other characters in the Black Legion novels where their interpretation, you know, chaos is, he grounds chaos without losing what's kind of mad and special about it. Mm. And that is perfect for Slaves to Darkness, which is all about this middle road. Yes. Where you're not fully branded one way or another, literally. Like, it's, mm. you know, all about the sort of uncertain path to glory. And I think he's a great choice for that. And it's a really kind of rich book as a result. It's also, there's so many units. Like, um, hang on. I guess there are lots of uh, historical units they can call upon as well. Yeah, there are. I think one of this is some uh, weird, there's some weird decisions. I think they haven't they haven't lost very much actually. Yeah. Um, and obviously a lot of the old units aren't being replaced. All the Warcry War bands are in there, including some of the new monsters like the Mind Stealer Spheranx, the big cat. I've seen the massive cat. Oh yeah, that thing is wild. That thing, that thing is a massive cat, and it's going to make you fight last. Oh my god! No. <laughs> um, there's the um, Ogroid Myrmidon, which is the fighter brother to the mage class mm-hmm. Ogroid Thaumaturge. Fantastic. Um, oh yeah, yeah, that's good. Who's great? Like a pit gladiator Ogroid. Yeah, right. which is really cool. There's the Fomoroid Crusher, who is a one-eyed cyclops dude that throws terrain at people. <laughs> <laughs> which is, he's got a variant of the um, Herald. Oh, well, so he he has a really powerful ranged attack, which is just him picking up the ground and throwing it at people. But if he is fighting you and you are near terrain, he does like automatic tons of mortal wounds because he picks up trees and hits you with them. (laughs) Oh my god, um, that's right. So don't fight him on a piece of terrain, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's stuff like that, but there's also like it's just a really comprehensive rebalancing of that faction into groups as well. So in addition to the 
standard faction, you pick subclasses, sub-factions now, which are Ravagers, Cabalists, Despoilers, or Everchosen. Mm. So Everchosen used to be its own book. It's now yeah, part right. of this. Cool. Everchosen is kind of the exception because that's Archeon is your general. Like, is the cornerstone of that, yeah, of that whole thing. Archeon has gone up 200 points. Okay. Um, he's, he's and he's gotten a lot better. He's a strong boy. He's a strong boy, but they basically buffed him up to be equal to Nagash now. Gotcha. Like, uh, okay, like, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Because it is, it is fact that Archeon beat up Nagash. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and yes, made, made him... Made a fool of him, really. Yes, exactly. The way I put it uh, on Discord is, the whole thing is basically a teen drama, but the end of the Age of Myth is... Archeon mugs Nagash and takes all his lunch money. Yes. Nagash goes home. Then Sigmar loses one, one round and decides to pick up his ball and go home. Mm. And, and Archeon is the de facto winner. Winner. Basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the other three are really interesting. So Ravagers is all about sort of barbarian stuff, but also about the fact that the chaos generals do not necessarily adhere to a strict structure. So you can have up to five, or, no, almost all of your heroes can have a command trait. Mm. Um, up to six, you're only limited by points cost. Everything got a little bit more expensive in this book. Yeah. Um, but um, every turn, someone else becomes your general. Oh, wow. And so one of the ways to save Sedatness ability works is every, one of the core of Sedatness things is the aura of chaos. So you, you can mark almost every unit, apart from the Warcried cultists, actually, with a mark of chaos. So yeah. corn, neat, zinch, Nuggles and Lash. They each have standard buff buffs, um, which do something normally. So a hero buffs a unit of the equivalent mark. But if it's your general, you get an extra buff as well. Yeah. So like the Nurgle example is by default, the Nurgle mark means that wound rolls of six do an extra damage in addition to any other damage they do. Right, got a poisonous um, If they're also your general, any unit in that range of the general is also minus one to hit with shooting. Oh. So it's like, it's just sort of all these sort of stacking bubbles. The Ravager thing is a new hero becomes your general every turn or has the option to be, hmm. which means you can move those general buffs around the battlefield. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, as different heroes kind of vie for their claims. So you build your cool. army out of warbands. So that's fucking cool. It is cool. And the other ability they have is once per game, your general can summon a unit of marauders or cultists, which are either regular marauders or warcry bands, basically, to the battlefield. And they arrive from a board edge. Right. But your general moves every turn. So you can do it every turn. <laughs> just depends on which general you're using. Oh, man. So if you're fighting against it, you have to kill the heroes because that's what is holding everything together. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But the idea is they're like rallying the tribes, like these sort of warbands are arriving from the board edge, like drawn to the battle. Yeah, kind of yeah. Which is super neat. That's super, super cool. That's really fun. Um, there's Kabbalists, which is the casting one, which they become, like, Safe Stardust has really good spells and they have really short range. Right. Um, and, but they, um, they have some, and they, and they're quite high casting value, but Kabbalists can like sacrifice nearby units to, um, gain buffs to casting. They can also sacrifice nearby units to push endless spells, which no one else can do. Huh. So they, if they sacrifice and they successfully kill three models from the unit that they sacrifice, friendly unit that they sacrifice, they can throw an endless spell another nine inches. Huh. Which means that you can rebuff things that are coming in. Yeah, like, right. Manipulate them and that kind of thing. That's right. Yeah. Um, there are despoilers, which is probably what I'm going to do, which is all about like demon princes and monsters and that kind of stuff. Um, demon princes get a lot better in the despoilers list, but they get the ability to corrupt terrain. So mm-hmm. if a demon prince finishes a move within six inches of a terrain piece, you can choose to make it either a, like a, basically like a pitch plaque kind of void chasm, which means that it completely blocks line of sight. 
So it doesn't matter. As long as a line can be drawn through it, it's 100% line of sight blocking, right. regardless of whether you can see the model. So you could do that to a fence. Or anyway. And it screens from shooting completely. Yeah, right. Yeah. Cool. Or you can turn it into like a mortal wound dealing kind of trap, basically. Right. So you corrupt the terrain, they get a few other cool things as well, some really cool artifacts. Um, and then there's Everchosen, which is Archeon. And if you're in an Everchosen arc, there's now eight different circles of Varangard. <laughs> so you can pick what kind of Varangard right. your, uh, yours are and where they come from. Yeah, and stuff. that's cool. That's cool. It's also Archeon. Archeon's uh, command ability in Everchosen is what used to be one of the, and it's one thing I want to talk about. I really like the look of this army, and I think it's, and I, and I need to stop saying this, but like, I want to build this army, I think, because, mm. There's a whole lot of toolkit stuff that's really fun about it. There's lots of different units. They they have a mixture of mortal stuff, demon stuff, other kind of weird things. The other big uh, fa- feature is the um, Eye of the Gods table, which is when a hero, if a hero kills a monster or another hero, you can choose to roll on a roll two d six on a table. On an eleven or twelve, they become a demon prince. Well. On a one or a three. A one or two, or a one or a three. Sorry, two or a three. They become a spawn. Yeah, that's still good. Yeah. Well, maybe worse than having Archeon. Oh, yeah. Fair. <laughs> good point. Yeah. Um, actually, although one nice thing is one nice sort of user friendly thing is they've they've changed that so that if you don't want that or you don't have the models for it, uh, you can choose to heal or lose D three mortal wounds. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's nice. And then in the middle is loads of buffs and the summoning demons, like you can impress the gods to summon demons and things like that. Yeah. But they don't have the summoning power that the monogod factions do. <laughs> but they can ally in from the monogod factions. And one thing they've changed is they've made Slaves to Darkness allies in monogod armies less good than monogod army allies in Slaves to Darkness armies. Interesting. Which is, I think, the right way around because Slaves to Darkness are necessarily the underdogs because they don't get the massive bonuses that Bloodbound or yeah, Slanesh yeah. get particularly. Hmm. But you could drop like a blood secretor in a corn marked slaves to darkness warband and still benefit from lots of the buffs. Interesting. Yeah. So it's become this really big toolkit army, which I think is really satisfying. Like you can paint all these pieces and get loads of different armies out of it. Yeah. And if you've uh, already got a kind of collection of random, you know, diaspora chaos. Yeah. You could make lo- build loads of different forces out of that collection you've got already. I think if I build up this core of Saves to Darkness that I already own, just need to paint through it, then yeah. I think you and I will probably never need to have very similar games of AOS ever. Because it's like... <laughs> yeah, right, you could just feel any sort of army that... Here's the Slanesh version of this. Like, it feels like um, it's, bro- it's broken free from the... If your general is this, then battle line is yeah. this. Which I've always found like it's quite restrictive for Stormcast, and perhaps that's quite themey actually, because Stormcast mm. are very regimented, and they you know they form chambers according to how Sigma wants them to. Whereas I love the idea of chaos being like, well, you've got a kind of a rabble, yeah, <laughs> and they're all kind of working against each other as well as they're working against the enemy, and mm. that kind of competition, uh, blood splitting competition, is kind of very themey. Yeah, it's it's really successful. I think I think also there's probably nothing in it that's wildly busted. There's a few things sure. that are really notable. Demon Prince has got a lot better. Mm. They always fight first, which is that's very great. Good. Used yeah. to be the Slanesh ability, now it's standard. And they now have a different... They have four command abilities, one for each god. Oh, cool. They have to belong to a god. Yeah, okay. Do you the, sort of declare that at the start of the game? Then? Yeah, they, they, so that's also changed. So they, right. they, they... It's rather than it's like they're declared at the start of the game, they're declared as part of your list building. Like, mm-hmm. right pick. Like, so um, Demon Prince is... Because canonically, there is only one unaligned Demon Prince, who I'll get to, Bellacor. Hmm. Um, 
a demon prince has to have an allegiance. So if a hero turns into a demon prince, they have to have the god allegiance they previously had. Because they wouldn't be elevated otherwise. Yeah, otherwise. God has to pull them up. You can have a chaos undivided hero, because undivided is now a legitimate allegiance. Oh, uh, right, it's a keyword. So it's five. Now it's, it's, undivided is a keyword, huh, cool. uh, which has its own buffs. If an undivided hero evolves, like a Pokemon, into a demon prince, you get to choose, which is cool, but you have to pick one of the four. Yeah. Um, the big winners are probably Slanesh and Nurgle. The Nurgle one is insane. Mm. Um, and maybe we'll get FAQ, but I don't think it needs to because it costs a command point as a limited range and it's more about forcing choices. So the Nurgle Demon Prince command ability is you pick another unit with the mark of Nurgle and basically they give them these sort of like acidic pustules which make them very dangerous to hit. Mm. So if you roll a six to hit them, you take D3 mortal wounds. Whoa. So... It's a big bounce. Yeah. It's a really disproportionate bounce because if you're rolling a huge weight of attacks and it applies to shooting attacks, it applies to everything. Um, it's a basically a huge don't hit this unit button. Mm. And I think people are kind of freaking out about the potential damage that can do, but it relies on your opponent going, yes, I will fight this unit. Then. Yeah, yeah, true. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. You can obviously force people by putting that command ability on them and then charging them into combat. But again, that's an something you have you plan around yeah, right? interesting. Like, yeah. and it only works if they're wholly within 12 of the demon prince so that's another like yeah you know hmm. Hmm. you know it's all at the end of the day I, th- I, f- I found actually this I, maybe it's simply because I've been paying attention but this book has you know I've seen the kind of theory craft and everything else that surrounded it and so much of that stuff when it happens seems to be not taking into account how practical it is to achieve these effects when yeah. you consider game timings, objectives, ranges, yeah, that's movement the, speeds, that kind of thing. It's easy to look at a book and say, well, if this precise circumstance happens, you do absurd amounts of wounds. But actually, in reality, your opponents are trying to disrupt where you're moving all the time and trying mm-hmm. to disrupt what you, can, what you can do all the time. And the real, like, it's rare that you're going to have access to the ultimate combo. Yeah. Unless it's some ridiculous thing like the, the shooting combo that you mentioned earlier where it's just right out of the gate you've got it. Yeah. Um, which is why these kind of bubbles are good. It's good to have like those uh, we can really empower units within a bubble because then movement matters. It matters where that hero is. It matters where the enemy is. Uh, yeah. And that's more that's good war game stuff. It is. Yeah, yeah. And um, so there's a few other cool things in there. Like so um, that it feels like and then on top of this sort of like standard kind of army structure there's some quite cool mind gamesy things in there which I'm into mm. I quite like mind games in war games yeah um, and appropriately they're on Archeon and Bellacor who are two characters that historically don't like each other right. so if you're not aware of who Bellacor is Bellacor is the first demon prince and he's the only demon prince of chaos and divided hmm but that is essentially because he's a failed ever chosen. Right. Because the point of being the ever chosen is you don't accept demonhood. Mm. You just keep on being a relatively normal man on <laughs> a big normal horse. Right. And the gods are always chasing your approval. Mm. You're not you've not given in. They don't yeah. have your soul yet. Yeah. Um and <clears throat> so Bellacor Bellacor is also the heart of a game that you and I are both very fond, fond of, Mordheim. Because mm. Bellacor falling to Earth is the origin. That's what caused it. It's what causes mm. the... Anyway, so that's a bit of side fiction. Nice, like, I didn't know that. Um, in AOS, he's become this kind of master of shadow. Um, he's always been like a manipulator behind the scenes. Like, he can't take the role Archeon takes. Um, but there's some cool stuff that I think makes him a really interesting foil for Archeon. And vice versa. Mm. Um... So Archeon in an Everchosen army gets a command ability, which means you roll a dice and then hide the result from your opponent. But you have to there's some of this stuff is gonna need props. Hmm. Basically you have to roll a dice, not change it, and then put a cup over it. <laughs> like this dice is gonna stay here. And that dice 
this is Archeon's thing, supersedes whatever the turn roll is for Whoa. the next turn, but with a different mechanic. So I think it's if it's a one to three, uh, your opponent takes the next turn. If it's a four to six, you take the next turn. Mm. And you can choose whether to use it or not. But the idea is you roll this dice on your turn, let's say, and you'll say you've gone second. And you can look at it knowing you're getting a double. Yeah. Or you can look at it knowing you're not, mm. if you want. Changes where you play completely. Yeah. Um, and then when it comes to the point where you roll off for the next turn, you choose whether you're going to reveal it or not. But your opponent knows you know this. So the idea is you have limited control of the turn order with Archeon. That's which is kind of his thing. Yeah, right. Um, so denying double turns, forcing double turns, that kind of thing. That's a big power. That's and, but I think the reason it's interesting is because it's mind games. Yeah. It's because... Um, you you know you look at it and you think you know your opponent thinks you know what's going on so you move as if you're going to have the let's say here's a scenario let's say it's the top of the first round and I'm going first with Archeon and I look at it and then I move really aggressively right yes so you on your turn think understandably he knows he's got the he knows I don't have a double right yes so I'm going to move away but then it turns out you do have a double, mm. but you've run away, so you can't take advantage of anything. Yeah. yeah, and so then you open me up to a double. Like it creates is always really interesting. Yeah, that's nice. It's cool. That's cool. Play. I think it's one of those things where I suspect it'll be a bit like Destiny dice, where people any automatic effect tends to upset people. But yeah, the Bellacore one is also fucking nuts, <laughs> and I think it's going to sound broken, but I don't think it is. Okay. Beginning of the game, after you set up the armies, but before the first turn begins. The player with Bellacore writes down one of your opponent's units on a piece of paper and hides it. Okay. So, Nagash, this block of troops over here, whatever it is. At the beginning of... Let's say I've got I've got Bellacore, you're you. At the beginning of any of your hero phases, I can reveal who I picked. Yes. If I do so, then Bellacore has manipulated that unit, mm. and it will take effect until my next hero phase. What that means is whenever that unit tries to cast a spell, move, charge, or attack with any of its weapon profiles, you have to roll a dice, yeah. and it only works on a five up. Ooh. And so what this is really neat, a reason, reason I'm really excited about this as a rule, is it's both anti-massive, sort of super buff, do-everything unit. It punishes, ironically, things like Archeon, Undergash, yeah, right. but also some of the things that are really prevalent at the moment, like ultra buffed Keepers of Secrets that are going to murder you completely, or, yeah, yeah. or huge blobs of particular infantry that are going to get jammed into your face round one and end the game for you, mm. that kind of thing. Um, um, it also acts as a counter to double turns. Because if you are about to get a double turn and I use this to start your first turn, you go through two whole turns that one of year. having to roll a dice every time Archeon tries to do anything. That's pretty cool. It is cool. Like, I think it's going to be one of those things that if I do run this and I'm planning to, and I think it's a tournament, I'm probably going to get little envelopes and little bellicore stickers and things <laughs> just to make it fun. Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise people are going to get very frustrated yes, that I've like, pressed the Nagash, Nagash does, like, Nagash.exe has stopped responding. <laughs> <laughs> That's delightful. Yeah. And all very kind of sneaky and yeah. very chaos themed. Like, I, I love, I love, it kind of reminds me of, so when AOS first came out, there were lots of kind of quite silly rules, like if your friend's got a beard, do X, mm. that kind of stuff. It's just like a mature evolution of that idea where you've got some slightly gimmicky stuff that has big game effects. Yeah. But also, like I say, like it gives you the opportunity to make those envelopes and actually have that be a theatrical part of the war game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm really fun. 
so yeah so my big project at the moment is is to save Sedatna stuff I've been working on stuff I've got Demon Prince he's almost done um but yeah really excited about it like it's also just the heart of uh, uh, in the loft somewhere in, in this uh, ceiling space I've got the Chaos Warriors I painted when I was 13 right and like I need to dig them out and like put them alongside the ones I'm doing now because yeah, like fun. some distance has been covered then since yes, then. yes. it's nice it's been nice to return to like the thing I really love which is ultimately Chaos Knights I don't I just love like I love Old World Chaos mm. and this feels like a return to that yeah, cool yeah where, like, that's really true I've got Libra Chaotica up there which is the big law book coffee table law book for oh, right. Old World Chaos and Ooh, it's cool yeah that's my heresy shelf <laughs> <laughs> Smell it. Speaking of Chaos Undivided Heresy um, and Gribbly Men and the quests they embark on, uh, we played your first games of Warcry this evening. We did. I greatly enjoyed it. it mm. I thought you would, and it's, it's yeah. a shame it's taken us this long to yeah, find, finally play. get it together. But it was fantastic. I've got to say, it's a lovely setup. So, Chris, you painted all the scenery, and it's got this great cardboard kind of mat. Like, it's a lovely looking play space just to step into. Yeah. Uh, and also, I just love skirmish games with a bit of campaign with a little bit of kind of hangover bit of kind of aftermath to everything that you do but it seems to be like very well balanced so that it's not punishing you too much for not achieving objectives yeah so so this is the, the we can make this topical by pointing out that we played Warcry today with us both embarking on champion mode campaigns mm. and so champion mode is a variant that was launched with the Tome of Champions book which is basically the general's handbook for Warcry it came out yesterday nice and actually, I'm really impressed with that book. It's got a bunch of stuff in it, like Monsters and Mercenaries with the first, which was the first expansion to Warcry, had a whole bunch of stuff in it, some of which, which you'll end up using loads, like the hero rules, some of which, like the monster rules, I suspect get used a lot less. Yeah. Um, but Warcry is continually built out, and it's really going from strength to strength, and I want to see it grow more, because, mm. like, they're solving I appreciate like I really would have loved to have done a Warcry special when it came out because there's sure. so much about this game I really love but like the campaign system which are basically these sort of um, the the fact that it's possible to have a campaign that is yours that doesn't rely on a reliable roster of players but allows you to go on these like short stories in the AOS universe some of which are faction specific some of which are now generic with the fated quests to find rewards that then get bolted to your faction your warband that grows over time has always been really really good and that's without talking about the core rules. The the big standout thing from the new book so far is these champion rules. Uh, you've not played without them, but no. to cover what they do, they add sort of more interesting injury tables, more interesting rewards um, for the aftermath phase of the games that you play. Um, so we, we should talk about the game that we played, because I think it's it's your introduction to this rule set, which I also think is one of the most interesting rule sets that GW have done for a yeah, while. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also had some fun kind of consequences. So... It's hilarious. First of all, we had to draw the scenario, and uh, I think for the bigger war games like your full 40Ks and OS, I really like this idea as well, that you draw a map, you draw kind of deployment zones, you draw the mission, and you sort of work with what you're given. Yeah. Um, and so for this one, we drew... Uh, there's like a treasure hoard that was in the, the Defender place, and it was the job of the attacker to go and claim all four pieces of treasure. Um, and Chris, uh, with your iron golems, mm-hmm. uh, was the defender, and my vanguard, uh, forced from the stormcast were the attackers. Uh, and I had which I chose instantly because of a roll off as well. Yeah, that's like, right. Yeah, you're always sort of in control of that game. Like, it's, it's, there's lots of interesting decisions to make in terms of like when you seize initiative, 
when you kind of how you spend your dice yeah there's some interesting stuff. roles that sort of I think part of that came with experience of the game and part of that was like the dice at the time but yeah, yeah yeah it's a nice thing to play there um, and uh, yeah so I had like two Griffhounds I had two Aether Wings and I had two uh, Vanguard Hunters and a kind of general which was a long strike crossbowman with a bird on his shoulder um, I was feeling pretty good going into it because Stormcast had pretty good stat lines they're very very tough uh, but I also had very, very fast things that could fly in, <laughs> steal beer, and then fly away <laughs> at great speed. Uh, and we had a great game. It was really, really fun. Uh, I don't know if we want to go blow by blow, but just... Maybe not blow by blow, but I'm really interested to hear your take on that rule set. Because yeah. I think it's really interesting, and it's very different. It is. Uh, so it's like... It, it's sort of past the path. Like, if you activate one thing, person at a time, and then your opponent gets to activate someone at a and you can choose whoever you want to activate. I love those systems. I think that's brilliant because it keeps both players in the game all the time because mm-hmm. uh, it's rather than one person sitting down to do, oh, I'm going to take, I'm going to have to use 45 minutes to do all the things I need to do, then you get your 45 minutes to do all the things you need to do. This kind of like passing back and forth and also giving you the opportunity to react on the fly to what your opponent is doing in those uh, past moments is just a more kind of it's just like more textured and gritty way to play a war game is really fun and you're always mm. involved in the action and um, I really appreciate the scale it's a perfect size board um, it feels really like a zoomed in version of, of Warhammer but it's also a simplified version of Warhammer with some incredibly elegant dice mechanics uh, so instead of like having to hit to roll to hit and then roll to wound then have Save. saves yeah. like the, all of that just been shortened right down to just uh, hit rolls basically um, and there's some chants in there so there's the kind of crit chances kind of creates interesting unexpected outcomes mm. uh, but just enough but not too much um, and it's the initiative system is outstanding like you you roll the six dice at the start of each turn and you can use doubles and triples this is something that's appeared in their box games as well quite a mm. lot that they're going to be working on this mechanic for a long time um, but if this feels like the most fruitful Ex- like execution of that in terms of the choice it gives you and the amount yeah. that you can you can do with it. So it's an initiative device, which means that um, depending on how you roll, you can gain the initiative or not. Um, but it's also you can use doubles and triples and quadruples to cash in for abilities and that kind of thing in the game. Yeah. So you have this dice pool that you roll at the start, and that really affects what you can do. Hmm. But there's, it also gives you like loads of flexibility in terms of how you use those points. It's really nice because it means. The, the initiative role is not a win-lose. It's either you you win initiative or you win abilities. Yeah. Like, and so it's it's more about pro- what you want, what is good for you in that. So um, one thing I really love about this system, and I really love this game, and I think it's one thing interesting about it is you're right. Like, um, when you said that it's about dealing with a situation that's arisen by the cards. Mm. You know, I've, I've played walk-around scenarios where people want to draw the cards, look at them, see if they create a balanced game, and then redraw them if they don't. Yeah. I think that is completely wrong. Hmm. Because I think Warcry, like we were saying earlier about Joe Johnson games, like, this is about finding yourself in a tactical situation. And Warcry really feels like it skips you to the middle of a game and asks you to finish it. Yeah. Rather than the, you know, engagement phase where you just sort of run towards each other for a bit and then set up the game. Yes. Um, it's about finding yourself in a situation and seeing if you can fix it or win it, or finalise it, or whatever it is that based on this dynamic that has been set up. And that is true on the macro scale. On the micro scale with this this mechanic, the initiative mechanic, um, you find yourself in some time, in some 
uh, turns having the initiative which I would stress in this game only means mo- moving one person that's, that's key to me yeah, yeah. that's really important it's, it, that softens the impact of initiative hugely but it's still important yeah because it, it could be tying up a key fighter it could be taking out a key fighter or something like that mm. you have that or you have the big abilities that are going to allow you to swing it the other way mm. and it's not always perfectly balanced and there are some nasty combos lurking in there but um, what it means is what you want turn to turn on turn isn't always the same thing. Yeah, yeah. There are going to be turns where you're happy to like seed the initiative and just take the big abilities, and there are going to be turns where shit that this because it's an objective game, it's going to get away from me if I don't get this thing now. Mm. And that I think is really great, particularly with the wild dice mechanic where you can then manipulate that somewhat because it's always asking you to look at the game state. And look at the tools you have available to you and try and eke a victory from that rather than go in with a pre-planned way of achieving victory yeah, right. and achieve it or not based on the dice, mm. which is the weakness of these games more broadly. Yes, yes. That's really cool. Yeah. The, that's epitomized by the fact that you don't know what scenario you're playing until after you've deployed. Yeah. So that you, is crucial, by the way. Yeah. I've seen people play it where they draw all the cards and then do the really? deployment. No, it's not designed that way. You're supposed to deploy and then draw the victory card, which exactly. is like, yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, so deploy how you think might be sensible. As, you know, a warband would going into mm. a place they've never been before. Like, they'd just right. march up in formation and see what happens. Um, so you deploy your, your guys and then you draw the victory, uh, sort of, the, the victory objectives. And they could be anything. Like it seems like, uh, so we got one which was like treasure capture. But yeah, what other sort of things can you get? So there's there's the straight up fights. There's trying to escape off board edges. Yeah, which can sometimes be completely fucked. Like <laughs> right. Um, there's um, taking down leaders. I believe there's um, there are ones where we had one where it was like an attack defender treasure thing. There's one where it's like there's one piece of treasure and everyone has to fight over it. Right, right. And get it off the board edge. There's you know that's there's a lot of different variants and the same basic rules basically. Yeah. But yeah. And you don't know where the objective's going to be. You don't know necessarily like where you, the focus of the battle is going to be. And it's up to you to actually play the objectives rather than uh, meta game it yeah. beforehand. And that comes that's true of list building as well. Like you want. I went for a little bit of everything, a bit of speed, a bit of kind of yeah. to hardiness, and had a great time. Really, really fun warband to play with, and uh, that's especially cool given that Stormcast aren't like a core warband. That the, the rule, rules were released for them along with the box, yeah. but uh, the Stormcast aren't one of the main chaos factions that uh, warbands that mm. Warcry kind of launched with. Um, but they still played really well, and they, they still felt like balanced, not too overpowered to me. Um, and yeah, it's just a really good, quick game to play as well. Once you know the rules and how it all works, you don't have to roll too many dice. It's it's fast, lots of mm-hmm. movement. It's just great. I think you're right that it it's not really possible to um, list build Warcry to beyond a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you want to like if you want to take your power seriously, particularly with the core war, war, warband sets, there are definitely duff units. And so having two boxes so you can take another one of the good ones rather than two of having to have a rubbish one in as tax is a good idea. But because you don't know that you're going to get your abilities. Yes. It doesn't necessarily, you know, you don't, you can't plan around them quite the same way. It's really good. Like, really, really admire it. Like, I played a lot of it in August, September when it came out. Mm. And then I painted the whole set. And therefore didn't play it at all. (laughs) (laughs) As it goes. Um, As it goes. And, but it's, you know, there's there's so much to it now. Particularly, I think this new book really fleshes it out. Like having the, so you got the the fated quests, which are neutral quests that you can go on, and a quest is going to be like ten to twenty games, which is going to take you as long as it takes you. Hmm. It's a substantial investment, and you can take that warband and keep going with it. 
the champion rules that for a lot of different reasons make make it harder but make you feel the sort of success and failure a bit more kind of dramatically yeah. which is useful for attachment there are these uh, the challenge missions which are one-off missions that you can opt to do at any time and they between the two expansions they range from things from taking on a monster to try and break it and, and draw it into your warband to you know trying to achieve some kind of crazy objective so like a one-off really powerful powerful artifact that kind of thing yeah and these missions often involve your opponent not using their own warband, but using a cool, like, custom set. Mm. So, like, there's one in the Monsters and Mercenaries book where you can opt to try and kill, assassinate a Varengard. And I'm painting some Varengard at the moment. So, <clears throat> like, I could, we could do a game where I give you a Varengard and his retinue of Slaves of Darkness. Awesome, yeah. And then all these, like, chaos, um, like, cultists, wet, like, trying desperately to kill them. Mm. And I really like that approach to this sort of game like this feels like the middle ground between wargaming and pen and paper role playing where it's like we're going to play the story of these two warbands clashing and it's not always going to be even and it's going to be weird and janky sometimes but we're telling the story we're not you know yeah like the, the stories are independent of one another like you don't have to play with the yeah. same player like each warband is on their individual heroic track and you, so I could play someone else and get another point on the track. Yeah. And then come and play you again and do a different kind of, do all the focused missions that kind of pushes the story along. Um, that's, that, that's makes for a very portable campaign that you can take down to a local games workshop and just play yeah. one of your single sort of single player campaign missions. Like it relies on some trust. It relies on people agreeing that like, I, I accept that in the past you have done these other missions and earned these upgrades. Sure. And yeah. Yeah. But, you should be able to expect at least that from people. Yeah. It's such a smart system, mm. honestly. Mm. Um, with that in mind, we should talk about some of the funnier outcomes of the game we played. So, so we played a match where my Iron Golem, embarking on their quest to find a forge um, in which to practice their sort of smithy arts. These are the, this is the band from Shimon the Realm of Metal, because, of course, that's who I'm playing. Yeah. Um, uh, encounter while guarding a stash of stuff uh, Stormcast Vanguard, which is a big thing to encounter if you're just Loaded dudes. Chaos. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, then a pigeon stole my booze. That's right. That's what <laughs> happened. Swept in, nicked one of the objectives, flew away. Yeah. Um, you get you get two activations for each uh, character in Warcry, mm. which is really really elegant. Um, so the, the bird swept in, grabbed the booze. Second move. Flew up, flew up into the rafters of a nearby building. The train's lovely, by the way. It's really, yeah. really nice design. Um, and yeah, so just nicked that booze and flew off. And my objective, by the way, was to hold all four pieces of treasure uh, uh, by yeah. the end of a round. And uh, it proved tumultuous. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, we could probably try and equate battle events to outcomes at this point rather than trying to do the blow, blow, blow the whole thing. But, um, so the second bird swooped in to grab some treasure, but couldn't get as far away. Yes. And got uh, twatted really hard. <laughs> By a man with a giant shield on a stick. Yeah, exactly. So the signifier, who's the guy with the big gong. Yeah. I like to think, canonically, just whacked that ether wing with a gong as it was going past. It's sort of like, it's like, imagine swatting a sparrow with a frying pan. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of what I imagine happened to that poor <laughs> bird. <laughs> uh, and uh, the bird was down, and uh, you retrieved your treasure. I did. Um, we had some other really good moments. You got, you... Um, 
one of your vanguard did like rapid fire. So basically, they fired his hand crossbow like an Uzi into the face of a nearby Iron Legionary, yeah, he's who died the fuck out. Red mist. And afterwards, on the new wound table, gained yes. uh, he lost an eye. He did, yeah, unsurprisingly. So I'm kind of like in my head. The theme of that is he actually sort of like because the Uzi in this rapid fire thing. Mm. I like to think that he sort of like. And these are like lightning crossbow bolts, like tank yeah. them on his shield. Yeah. For most of them, but then one of them slipped through. Yeah. Like straight right in the eye. eye. Like, yeah. And he miraculously survived, honestly. Yeah, like, it's just about. Yeah. Uh, bless the forces of chaos for that. Yeah. Uh, Rapid Fire's very good. Birds are very good. Uh, my Griffhounds swept in and heroically tried to take more of the treasure. Yeah. Basically, dogs and birds tried to steal my treasure while nearby men with guns shot at me. Yeah. <laughs> um, my general only hit once in the entire. I don't think he hit twice. Once he, he landed one very, shot out of very six. Last, yeah. uh, the very last shot he took, uh, which he, he did crit and it was good, but it didn't quite kill the the guy he was, he was shooting. Um, that's uh, that's two hundred and eighty points. Not <laughs> well so well spent. Yeah. <laughs> Ma- mandatory spend, but nonetheless. I enjoyed. Um, once my bird had taken the booze, uh, the bird went back to the general and dropped it by him, so the general could pick up the booze. So, so there's kind of mental image of uh, an aether wing swooping in, grabbing a, a cask of beer, flying all the way around the battlefield in a giant loop and dropping it back at the general's feet. Vanguard chamber, the most chill chamber. <laughs> yeah, they're just on a good night out. Yeah. I happen to have encountered some cultists. Um, I had some amazing moments. So um, the way it, the, the defender deployment worked is I had a part of my warband that came on in the second round yes. so you started with all your stuff I got my second stuff in the second round and I put a lot of my heavy a lot of my heavy hitters happened to be in that group mm. this is one of the reasons why the specific decision ordering that's in the Warcry core rules is so important yeah. and I see like I think so many people ignore this completely like you do the scenario then you divide your warband then you decide who deploys where yes it's you know correctly it's um, divide the warband then terrain then deployment then you deploy, then the objective. Yeah. You shouldn't know what you're going to get. But as it happened, I got my heavy hitters, like the drill master, my leader, Dominar, and the ogre breacher um, on in the second round. And they, like, in the previous campaign I played with these, and I, I reset to do champion mode, they were all very hit and miss, apart from the, the drill master, mm. the lady with the whip, who has traditionally been great. Right. They crushed it. Like They were great. My um, my leader rolled two crits to exactly kill the Stormcast. Yeah. Which is getting him, like, in on the fucking road to being a Varangard, mm. to be honest. Yeah, must be. And then the turn after that, the Drillmaster charges past him into the other Stormcast and rolls three crits <laughs> and kills that Stormcast. Yeah. She's going to become a Varangard. Like, yeah. I may even, like... They're on the path. Yeah, I know. I mean, I may... I've got another box of um, uh, Iron Golem... And I may even build, like, put, like, the Drillmaster head on a Varangard body at some point, like, just to kind of, <laughs> like, awesome. yeah, yeah. She's finally ascended. Yeah, and the Stormcaster are no slouches when it comes, like, they're tough. They've got 20 hit points. 20 away. wounds, yeah. 20 wounds, which is plenty. They're not completely busted, though, actually. No. I quite like that. Like the, yeah, they seem well balanced to me. Yeah. They've got a ranged attack, which used to be quite powerful in the game. Yeah, um, there's not a lot of that going around. Yeah, so that, that's their kind of special, special. Well, there's not a lot of ranged attacks that don't require ability dice. Gotcha. Mm. So their ability just to, again, just to shoot, just yeah. shoot stuff is seems to be really, really, really strong. Um, but it's lovely to just break out those models, who, which frankly aren't that good in AOS. Yeah, and actually bring them into a, a field of battle where they're pretty competent. Um, not brokenly so, but it's fun to also just be able to use the griff, like the griff hounds and the birds. 
which again are rubbish in AOS, really, um, actually have them do stuff. Griffhounds have, <laughs> yeah. have 20 health and a toughness 4 in Warhammer. Yeah, well, they've got three wounds in AOS as well. I'm going really to put it this way. A regular Iron Legionary with some hammers is toughness 4, 10 health. Mm. So what they're arguing is a dog, a, a space dog, is two men. That's, that is true of AOS as well. true of AOS. Where they have two wounds, inexplicably. Uh, I think they've got three wounds. What? Yes. What? Yeah. There's more than a Marauder Horseman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're very, very <laughs> tough dogs. That's, t- that's the same amount as a Chaos Knight. <laughs> <laughs> no armour, though. That's the thing. But armour is... Still... Like, yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's a very straight... They're just incredibly tough dogs. I don't know why. Um, they're also quite cheap in Warcry, so I might take some more. <laughs> yeah, right. How, how cheap are they? Actually, um, they're not... No, I was thinking of the Aether Wings. Aether Wings are 45 points. Oh, that's pretty, that's yeah, pretty cheap, yeah. Yeah, they're cheap. Um, the dogs are 150, which is more. Mm. So yeah, to be fair, that's double my base against the Well, okay, yeah, fair enough. They've got some cool abilities. They can do a darting attack if you've got the right... Uh, uh, if you've got the right dice to do it which is very good I'm really glad you enjoyed it though because yeah, I, like, I thought you would like it and we have been talking previously so much about more time coming back yeah for sure and I really think this is really becoming that like yeah. particularly with the like it was kind of getting there but the, the rules that make campaigns more rewarding more detailed the fact there's so much to it like um, Tome of Champions has it doesn't have the rules because they will come in card packs but it has the um, sort of um, the quests for the next generation of expansions, which oh, cool. is yeah. Sacrosanct, uh, Warrior Chamber Stormcast, um, just tons of stuff. Corn, Nurgle, Zinch, Slanesh, Skaven, mm. uh, Caradron, um, there's loads more. There's even rules for like having skeletons as neutral monsters and stuff, I think. That's and cool. it's becoming this like AOS skirmish toolbox that you can create all these different experiences with. But it's really... There's a lot of really nicely planned thematic narrative writing in there as well. Right. So it's not just a sandbox, come up with your own story for this. Like, you know, I appreciate we could have, you know, burst through it on the way to playing the game today. But, you know, your Stormcast are on a particular quest and it has a story. Yeah. And it will yield particular rewards for them based on that story. Mm. And they'll take those rewards into the next campaign and so on. That's very And that's really gratifying. Also, good wounding mechanics. Yeah. So, um... My, one of my Griffhounds got a concussion. <laughs> it was the one that was taken out of action because it was body slammed by an ogre breacher. Oh yeah, that was a, that ogre breacher's wrath. So the breacher can just like move charge into a. It's a triple ability, but it means if you finish, it's a triple. If you spend it, yeah. If you move into an, if you finish a move within an inch of an enemy, that enemy takes damage equal to the value of the dice that you spent on the triple. Nice, nice. So yeah, um, so yeah, that that concussed a Griffhound. Uh, the Griffhound is still concussed. Um, the hunter who was eviscerated by the giant hammer. Um, what happened to him? All his blood got a gut wound. Him. Got a gut wound. That's right. His guts falling out of him. But in the exploration phase afterwards, I found a sawbones man and rolled just right, and uh, he fixed my guy's broken guts. And that's immediately a story, right? Like yeah, your vanguard right. are like behind enemy lines in the eight points, which is so for for the law fans. Uh, Watercry is set in the eight points, which is. Used to be just a Varen Spire, but they've expanded it massively. It's basically a continent-sized sub-realm, mm. so it's outside of all the other realms, and it's but it's got huge realm gates to all of the different realms. And the idea is that it was it used to be the really like the seat of civilization, it's where all the realms met and shared their culture and their skills and everything else. It was taken by Archeon, who built the Varen Spire there, and now because Archeon controls it, that's one of the reasons Chaos has such a grip on the mortal realms yeah. because. It is the nexus. 
and it's now this war racked um like wasteland scattered with towns and like actually we should talk about this because I think the fiction it's re- it's really cool how they've, how they've expanded the fiction in this way mm-hmm. so like you know out in the wilderness massive chaotic corrupted beasts fight each other constantly for dominance but there are also cities they've added this city called Karngrad which is um, a big factor in some of their campaigns in fact I picked my campaign because I knew I'd be fighting you some of the campaigns taking place entirely in the streets of Karngrad and um that wouldn't make sense if you were fighting Stormcast all the time. No, no. Like, the idea is, if you know, Stormcast have to keep to the wilderness and, you know... Yeah, exist, like, live in very a chaos city. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but this is literally a chaos city um, with its own kind of leadership hierarchy and all these cults sort of vying for control mm. and um, all of these other kind of interesting details. And it's all in the shadow of Archeon. And so in the Varen's, so the, so for the geography of it, the Varen's by eight roads span from the Varen's by any appointed star. Each of them leads to a uh, realm gate to one of the realms. Mm-hmm. These are massive sort of elevated highways that whole armies can march down. Right. In the, in the spokes between those roads are huge wildernesses that everyone else scrabbles over for control. So this really is the new Mordheim setting or the yeah. Necromunda for AOS. It's right. like, the other factions, the order factions, the death factions, destruction can come in here to try and get something. But it's a war-torn shithole with all these different environments in it, and it's really satisfying to kind of explore that. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and um, there's some really like I I, uh, I read the book that came out alongside the game, which has one short story for each of the war bands. They're a bit hit and miss. Mm. But there are some real standout ones in there and they're really neat is getting the sort of on the ground view of what it's like to be a chaos person. Yeah, yeah. In that setting. Oh man, it's a great setting, isn't it? And it's one that can generate so many different clashes between different factions as well. Yeah. Yeah, it is. The um the I think the two that I decided that if I do another war band after Iron Golem, it would be based on which of the stories I liked most. Yeah. Fair. And um the Unmade are the big winners yeah. for me. Got, uh, the drama death people. The boss uh, of the Unmade is one of the creepiest models they've ever done. Yeah. Super freaky. I'm um, stilt legs. Yeah. Wearing my own face as a belt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's really strange. But yeah. Very good. And maybe the Untamed Beasts. I think the two best stories in that are the Unmade and uh, the cool. Beast stories. Huh. Iron Golem is good. The Corvus Cabal one is then next. I think the weakest one is the Cypher Lords one. Mm. But yeah, like. Man, it's real good. I really want to play more of it. Like, Yeah, I look forward to playing more. It was rad. I lost the week. <laughs> oh, yeah, we should say. Yeah, we should say. Um, those place, I've got three of them. Uh, oh, no, my Griffin got splattered at the end of me. Yeah, I got four of your dudes. You got three of mine. Yeah. But to be honest, I, those miracle crits that killed Stormcast <laughs> were like... That's pretty rad, though. Yeah. Although, actually, we should say the Incredible. So, um, one of my... Uh, the guy who got shot in the face... Mm. Um, uh, no, hang on. It wasn't the guy who got shot in the face. One of the other guys inexplicably felt so much better because I rolled a double six on yes. the wound table. They actually gained a destiny point. Got inspired. Oh yeah, my bird got double inspired. Yeah, the, the bird got hit by. They got hit with a gong. Y- yes, got inspired twice. Yeah, so he, he's he can a couple of re rolls on yeah. his attacks next game. Uh, not that that'd be very much used because they're not very good in combat, but they're very good at seeing objectives. <laughs> but he hit, hit with a gong with such force that <laughs> he realised how brilliant he was. <laughs> Incredible. Like, yeah. What a remarkable bird. Shall we do some questions? Let's do it. Because we've amassed a, a little pile. Yes. Uh, our first question, I'm going to have to lean slightly, comes from Ryland, who writes, 
Dear Chris Threads Thurston and Tom Sows Sr., what are your favourite fashion trends in Age of Sigma? Oh my. I've just moved to New York City and find myself thinking about fashion more than I ever have before. This reminded me that when telling people about AOS, one of the easiest, this isn't your granddad's fantasy hooks for folks to grab onto is often the fire slayers. The concept are wild, but their physical descriptions that really solidifies them into something tangible, yet utterly metal. What are some other fashions in the Age of Sigma that you find yourself thinking of a lot? And what's your favourite connection between a group's themes and their dress sense? Love the pods, mm. Ryland. Mm. And I guess the most ostentatious, maybe not ostentatious, the most sort of like thing that might happen in New York is probably the great steam of Sarnesh wearing uh, strange flesh tights. Yeah, mm, stockings, stockings that are off your that, skin. That are off your, your skin. skin. Yeah. yeah, that's quite that's quite a bold statement, I'd say. Like um, Gaga's meat dress. <laughs> Mm, it is the meat dress of... <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, I think that's a, like a realm of beasts artifact. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the Gargayan meat dress. Yes. <laughs> um, fashion-wise, I, I, I do like the Ideneth, actually. I love their um, mm. the armour and the way... I've, I've painted them as being made out of bone, because it looks like they could be. It doesn't look like they've necessarily been metal-worked. It looks like they could have been polished bone. Um, these kind of... Almost like leaf-like structures. Those elves always polishing the bone. Yeah, that's how they do. <laughs> that's what they like to do in their spare time. Not much to do in the deeps. But, uh, so no, they can't do that because they, they got they got they went all the way down there to avoid Slanesh. <laughs> oh no, that's Not true. Not to roll in the deeps. Yeah, like some kind of wild dell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fashion fashion is a good thing. Like, mm. at what point does armor plate stop being pragmatic and start being fashion? Chaos. Chaos is, is the answer. <laughs> so they can I, accessorize, right? I was going to say, um, I'm just going to turn around. The um, I like the, um, the new Chaos Warriors for this. Yes. Because they have all accessorized differently. So the one I happen to have painted is wearing a person's skin, including their face. Oh, he is. You can see on their back. Yes. He's a surprised. Yeah, he does. Su- alarmed. <laughs> like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, no. no. I'm a cape now. <laughs> I think they do a good job of those of like they're all on their own individual path to glory so inevitably they've accessorized differently along the way yes stuff I've killed that I'm now wearing as clothes is a big theme yeah for sure I've got to say like I quite like the uh, the layered robes of the sacrosanct chamber the mm. sectors that's quite a cool look I did the minus good terurges or however you pronounce that yeah right um I did the kind of underlayer is leather on mine which because mm. that would be armour like that would actually stop things uh, sort of blows but then the kind of like a layer of purple silk over it which is pure fashion there's no mm. it's not going to help you in battle it's just there to to look cool and yeah. look good and look good in the fight represent represent the order yeah no I think I'm going to go with just wearing whatever you've killed most recently as a hat. that's still good Orcs yeah. are very good at that as well mm. that's a, it's definitely a, it's, a, it's a chic it's a, it's a it's a definitely a look yeah serving looks as it were um Questions for questions, champion. 24 for 24, despite the time gap. Uh, Pete Fienia from Discord writes, Hello, Chris Throtep and Tom Seraphis. My question is this. Uh, what does one do about dust? This is one. Mm. I, this is an issue I don't see talked about in hobby circles all that much. Models on display shelves will accumulate dust like nobody's business. Do you painstakingly dust models you're going to use when you remove them from the display area? Is the real solution to keep them in boxes and display the public deny the public the chance to see all our fine artistry, or perhaps the luxury solution of buying those glass-fronted shelving units? Is the answer. Love the pod, Pete slash Fienia from Discord. Well, Pete, I would say 
all is dust. <laughs> as the thousand sons would, yeah, exactly. would tell you um, um, I had this after I moved house all my thousand sons were, um, my heresy era thousand sons were really dusty right. and I was like none of my other models were like, come on so guys come stop on. trying this hard to fail anyway I um, I do dust stuff off before I use it in a game and I just use like uh, some water on a paintbrush and uh slop it basically mm. um, given that like modern Games Workshop plastic paints you can put a bit of water on them they're not going to move it, yeah. it gets rid of dust much quicker than blowing them or kind of dusting them with it's that. a good idea actually yeah water gets it right off I now have a glass for, glass display cabinet which is one solution to this it's lovely I like this um, yeah it's nice it's um it's good to have that much shame in one place <laughs> no it's nothing but delight for my many plastic sons um but also, um, I did start using compressed air for this, as well, uh, yes. which I was also using to clean my PC. Yeah, good for keyboards. Good, good for this sort of thing. But yeah, it's a real thing. It's true. Particularly, actually, I, I find it less of an issue for models that you finish painting than stuff that has been on the sideboard for ages that you half painted. Mm. That that can be a real thing. I find it, so the uh, Star Drake gathers dust, something fierce. Those mm. big wings. Man, they look so dull until you give them that little wash. Then they come right. The starscapes pop right back up again. Pop right back up again. That's what they do. There's two people who have inexplicably painted starscapes on wings. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I had the same issue my lord changed before I went to live in that box, (laughs) that cabinet. Willie writes. Dear Miniature Crate and Scalpel, after following Miniature Monthly since its initial release, I finally bit the bullet. And it's a Bloodborne board game Kickstarter-shaped bullet. I blame you. I've been eye- eyeing a cooperative miniature game like Silver Tower Blackstone Fortress ever since you discussed them, and along comes a Bloodborne-themed one. Hmm. Since it's been about a decade since I painted half a Warhammer Fantasy Orc army, I'm a bit rusty. I figured I should join two friends in the Necromunda game as painting practice, and because I get to play with my friends. Then I realised I want those minis to be well-painted as well, so now I have a set of Adeptus Mechanicus Katarii for practice and probably a bit of kit bashing. Taking some pictures of my first painted model, I realized that I needed a bit of background. So now I'm thinking about building a term table with a small diorama on top, like some Necromunda back alley. Where do many people share their works that I might get some inspiration and who are your favorite artists? Keep on podding. Willie. Mm. I feel like there are two things here. One is the actual question and one is the es- incredible escalation. I was just thinking that, like, <laughs> just hearing this, uh, hearing this listener just sort of go down the circle of the drain and eventually sort of plop into it and go full Warhammer is, yeah. uh, is quite... The journey to satisfying. fuck it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When, you, when you're at the stage of rotating round tables, you, you are true hobby. That's I do not have a lazy Susan <laughs> with the all points on it. No, not yet. <laughs> the ultimate lazy Susan. That would be... Archean's lazy. Again, Games Workshop, if you're listening, there's a product <laughs> yeah, exactly. idea right there. It's one for the dinner table over Christmas. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, what, the, the eight points... The, the eight-pointed lazy, lazy Susan. Susan of chaos. Yeah, put your sprouts on that. <laughs> Hey. <laughs> ah, father, you may you may roll on the eye of the gods table. Do you mean spin the lazy? Yes, yes. I want the sprouts. <laughs> Parsnips for you, father. <laughs> parsnips from the realm of Akshi. Fire parsnips. Yeah. Anyway, what were we talking about? Um, the question was, I can't remember either. Um, um, I, I I've clicked off it. Hang on, I'll go back. Uh, the question was oh, favorite painters and favorite painters and places to see painters. Instagram, Instagram's really good. Recommend following tags on Instagram as well as individual yeah, people. Well, absolutely, yeah. Um, the there are a few. I only know by usernames. Um, so I I 
started um, supporting uh, Little Legend Studio on Instagram for really good tutorials. Partly get access to some really good Titanicus tutorials, but also just good general tips. That tends to be of the Golden Demon tier. Nice thing that I haven't been doing much of recently. The other one I admire a lot is someone who goes by NRM Paint mm. on Instagram, whose painting style is mine if I was much better. <laughs> which is really like, so like occasionally you'll see someone who's much better than you, but paints really differently or has yeah. a different set of tastes. Yeah. In which case you're like, okay, cool, that's great. I don't necessarily need to feel bad about this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this person is really great at painting and way better than me and paints very similarly to me in terms of what their tastes are, mm. uh, which has been good. A journey, but good. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I follow some people on Twitter. I can't remember their usernames now, but um, I'll forward them over and put them in the show notes. Mm. Um, I think just Instagram's great, especially tags. That's a really good piece of advice because you never quite know what you like until you see it. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Like, uh, you don't know what people are do- out there doing with their models until you actually sort of get it, get, get it pushed in front of your face. And uh, Instagram's very good for doing that. Um, but yeah, there's so many great painters out there. And you're right about style as well. There's some styles like the airbrush styles I never quite get on- mm. along with, but I still respect the kind of, the artistry that goes into producing vehicles that have been beautifully sprayed and stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, that's a good question. The next one comes from Tom Lando. Who writes, Greetings, Chris. 30 bucks for one model, that's outrageous. And Tom Sentinel, has that been done yet? I wanted to start with the request. For the first time in Minchester Monthly, make an entry in the Book of Grudges. Oh. If you're not aware, this is a Warhammer-themed mechanic from, well, kind of defunct now from the other podcast, the Games Podcast, yes. where we just moan about something. Yeah. What's going to get moaned about? Let's find out. Um, entry. Boris the Bully, not the real name, obviously, came from out of town, enters, entered into a summer tournament at the friendly local game store, insisted that reroll misses meant rerolling infinitely till you hit, therefore fielding units he claimed never missed when nope. challenged, pretended to, to call Games Workshop, and claimed they sided oh my with him. <laughs> God, what? Granted, I was young, but this maddening memory intrudes every time I hear you discuss poor sportsmanship and questionable play and how to deal with it. I can't go back and defend my younger self, uh, but I can at least air to the world how ridiculous this move was. <laughs> I mean, that's a power play for sure. Yeah. <laughs> how did you convince someone that you'd called Games Workshop and... Actually, yeah, McDonald's is Games Workshop yeah, actually, and he says yeah, I win. Yeah, I've just called Jervis and he says, actually, I win. <laughs> Not you. Uh, question. Back in the day, I had a Death Guard army and their war gear was wacky. Plague Marines all were wielding plague knives that instantly killed on a wound roll of six. Nice. And for special characters, they got the plague sword, which is the same on a four to six. Blimey, that's strong. This was my first army, and it was small and high point cost. It didn't really look like an army. Later, I would build armies like Imperial Guard and Tau as a kind of correction, or perhaps even penance for running that wacky Nurgle army. Um... But I own a large collection of white dwarf issues going back to the 80s, and exploring them, they redefine wacky in regards to tabletop rules. I remember hearing a tactic described where in a previous edition, you could race bikers up to the enemy firing line and produce a wall of cotton in front of it to blind them, because that's what smoke grenades could do. Cool. This seems like it might not have been true, but it seems plausible given the absurd tables provided for things like vortex grenades... When I consider your frequent discussion of narrative gameplay as opposed to more competitive, I feel like there's somewhere between the absurd special rules... Um, sorry, somewhere between what's, what special, absurd special rules feel unsatisfying, like plague weapons, and what feels cool, like having a wildly imaginative table of weird boy powers that can go off at random and affect the table in a strange way. Granted, I trend towards 
RPGs more, so this is maybe more of an issue of personal preference. My question is, where do you think that line lies? Do you think cotton smoke grenades are cool? Is there a point in which we can measure an effect as being interesting rather than special combat advantage? Is there a, a side effect of that point that you feel you'd prefer your tabletop games to err on? Love the pod. Best wishes, Tom Lando. P.S. Chris always talks about his interest in RPGs, but does he ever do a podcast about them? I would listen to that. Mm. Uh, to to that point, no, I don't. And part of me is, like, wary of... I don't know, my RPG is very personal. Yeah. Like, weirdly. Um, if you're interested in my RPG stuff, the I did a Cyberpunk 2020 role-playing series for PlayStation, for the official PlayStation UK channel, PlayStation Access. I'll put it in the show notes. That is about... That's about as close to a good example of how I DM games, if you're interested in that. Otherwise, we did the Crank and Crowbar uh, D&D, which I loved. Yeah, it was so um, much fun. A lot of fun. Uh, that was two years ago on the main podcast, but it's on YouTube. We can link to that as well. Lovely. But to this question, which I think is an interesting one, uh, which is where the line is between a theme special rule and something that gets in the way of the pure dice maths of strategy and victory. Mm, well, it feels like AOS has moved strongly in the direction of the what is cool to happen in-game. Yeah, but away from you have beard, so you get bonus. Yeah, there's a, there's a middle ground there for sure, which I think they're eventually hitting. Um, I think maybe an example of this in AOS is Endless Spells. Hmm. And I'm not sure how successful they've been, really. Like, that some of them are cool. They're really good. I think I think having an Endless Spell-heavy Zinch Army at LGT... Yeah. They are competitive. They're good. Like, they they're, do a lot they're of stuff. They're yeah, yeah. yeah. But they're also fluffy as well. Mm. They, they have their own models and they look great on the tabletop. Which, yeah, uh, right. They've, they straddle that middle ground, it seems. I think, I think the cop-out answer to this is that it's always going to be dependent on your comfort with just dealing with whatever happens. Mm. Like, I personally think that the best attitude to foster is one where you walk into every new game expecting to be surprised by something. Yeah, right. Like, your unit can do what? Or, you know, that artifact does this? Or whatever. And if you can do that and have fun with it, then that's, again, part of the skill of losing, usually. Yeah, right. Um... The, I feel like having rules that come down to really predictable archetypes is the long road to playing chess. Right. You can play chess real easily. Just go play chess. Yeah, I think maybe the equivalent in AOS is the, the old D3 Mortal Wounds thing. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, here's a really fluffy, exciting description of something that will happen in D3 Mortal Wounds. Um, and I'd prefer it to do something a bit weirder, even if yeah. it maybe upsets the game a little bit. Mm. The, the, so there's some cool stuff, so hang on. Chris is turning, I'm turning around again. No, I, don't, I will turn around again just a sec. He's, a, he's going to his desk and he's, he's having a rummage. There's much more hammer on the desk. And he's, a, he's picking up a device. It's a small box of endless spells. So it's the darkness of so the, the spells. So you see this one, which is a demon vomiting fire out of a I hole can in see space that. time. It's beautiful. I, I played a, made a, as a man who's made a blood nado, I have deep respect for that, that sculpt. Hmm. Um, uh, I think it's the demon fire rift. I see. Teleporting eight-pointed star that a demon's face comes out of and vomits fire onto people. Fantastic. It does D3 mortal wounds, mm-hmm. plus an extra mortal wound for every wizard or endless spell within a foot of it. Ah. Which is kind of neat, because it's yeah, in the same archetype, but it becomes situationally very useful. Right. If there's a wizard nearby, it can do loads more mortal wounds. Yeah. If it hits one of those big covens of wizards that people like to gather around an umbral spell portal, oh, it's boy. going to incinerate, incinerate people. Yeah, yeah. So that is... Isn't it a way of adapting that to make it more... Yeah, so mechanics like that where it just sort of... D3 mortal wounds probably has to be the standard for various reasons. Yes. But there are ways for them to make it spicy. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I'm trying to think if there's... I think... 
I think there is a balance with these kinds of rules between it, it pulling you out of that I know exactly what's going to happen mindset where mm. the game just sort of progresses and you're in your own head not engaging with your opponent and time it takes to execute those rules and the best examples of this are things that uh, are really quick to resolve but do pull you out of that um, fully sort of in your own head yeah, place do, going through your own game plan bit by yeah. bit without really having to change anything opponent, yeah, yeah precisely our next question comes from Chris who writes hey Chris with Tom lurking somewhere in the background here I am yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's my, gob- my goblin laugh good um I've been painting for about two years now and while it's definitely got better key things have been thinning my paints more than I thought I needed to and realising that painting models black before starting was not the same as basing over the two odd years I've definitely got better but the most biggest improvement has been in terms of speed I recently started an Instagram account so in these pictures of recent examples I find myself very quickly bashing through projects to a tabletop standard before moving on to the next thing, which due to my practice plastic addiction is great. But if I really want to improve significantly, I feel I need to slow down, take the time to learn new techniques. Mm. Web blending is a thing, right? Do you have any tips for how I can get out of my production line mentality? Best wishes, Chris. Uh, P.S. I'm most proud of my daughters. Here's a picture of Marathi. That's a good Marathi. Mm, a blue and green Marathi. Yeah, that's blue, blue wings. I like it. Um... Maybe mm. one hero model to buy one hero model that you love yeah. and want to lavish care on and try your best to realise the model that you want to in your head. And yeah. Then that Also, I would recommend buying... You spend 10 quid and get three sort of push-fit Stormcast or anything. Um, there are a few kind of starter kits like this where just three models just treat them as total experiment models if you want to test new techniques test them on them use that to inform your new techniques and then take those techniques onto the hero model that you're lovingly painting and uh, that, was, that should slow things down should give you an opportunity to experiment if things go wrong on the test models it's fine they're only three, three quid each mm. you know what they're there for they're not there to be a centerpiece for your army and then yeah take it to the hero model that's what I would do mm. the other thing I would say for this is think about effects you want to achieve and if you're not, if you don't feel ready to like spend loads of time on every aspect of a single model, which is what I would describe as like competition painting, like yeah, everything right. has to be great. Yeah. Think about one effect you want to achieve and getting that as good as it can be. Mm. That could be painting a face so it looks like a face. Yeah. Sure. Which learns leaning about that learns leaning means learning about how skin works. Yeah. You know, depending on what kind of creature it is or so on, or like a glowing weapon or a, um, you know. Uh, sort of iridescent armor or whatever it is that you want to do it's like weathering for example for me yeah. weathering brings loads of personality to a model mm. and that's something that's not too hard to get into but it's, it just needs a little bit of practice and... contrast great for weathering yeah here's right. a pro tip um, get a little bit of kitchen towel or whatever and you can use both Fuegan Orange and Achillean Green as bases for uh, oxidization and rust respectively very good they work really nicely oh, lovely. there you go little tip there that's a good tip uh, it's interesting uh, Interestingly, our next question from Kingsley um, is actually the opposite of that question, which right. kind of works quite nicely and wasn't planned. Hmm. Dear Chris and Tom, I struggle with painting units. I tried painting uh, painting like a group of individual heroes, and I've tried, tried going around material by material for the whole squad, and I'm not sure either approach is particularly satisfying. What are your strategies for this? Cheers, Kingsley. Hmm. I tend to go material by material, so, but that's... As a Stormcast painter, that's what you do. You just do all the gold and then you do everything else. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I think um, I vary. And I think one of the cop-out answers to this 
is different units, different models reward different approaches. Mm. But one thing I would say is sometimes it's a variant on the material by material approach, which I think is the right approach to batch painting. Mm -hmm. But, well, one thing, first thing, basic thing, adjust batch size. Sometimes batch is two models. Sometimes batch is five. Yeah. Sometimes batch is ten. At the moment, I'm trying to stick to five as the maximum. Um, the other thing is, one thing you can try is fully finishing a part of a model. Mm. before moving on to the next one because it gives you the satisfaction of having like all the capes look amazing or something yeah. like that yeah. um, one way like the the batch painting method I described earlier with the xenothal spray and then blocking in the metals I recommend getting to that point with all the models in a unit but after that you can do basically whatever you like because um, it's so quick so much quicker from that point to get the colours in you sure because it's all ready for contrast yeah so there's that as well yeah that'll help Uh, John writes, Dear Rattlings regularly, I wish. <laughs> sort of regularly. I spent an hour doing a coat of contrast paint on wood. I did not finish that first step. Walk ride. Too much scenery? Also, how to make decisions on character options before playing. I went with Max Hammers. Will regret, but themey. Best. Wham Badger. I think will regret, but themey. Put that on my, gra- my hobby gravestone, basically. <laughs> that, that, that is the way that I, I love to approach models. Just what what looks coolest what do I actually want to work um, I, I, I don't like I want to build this unit with swords because the swords look better than hammers even if the hammers have a slight advantage like I, I'd go for the theme over rules any day when it comes to painting the models mm. same I will say Warcry a lot of scenery yes. I painted it all yeah yeah it looks great it's a lot there's a lot of it yes you will paint scenery for a long time um, yeah and I mean I'm, yeah no theme over rules I think that's that anti-podcast basically yeah, exactly. isn't it? Good, great alternate titles to this podcast yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. give us your favourite alternative titles by the way so yeah man. yeah, that's a good idea yeah uh, next question comes from Chris aka Ascanius on Discord uh, who writes greetings Crisp Thurston and Tom Swelter fiery pun names for this question email because as the subject suggests I'm asking about Chris's Salamanders project okay I'm listening back to the olden times when that was a thing and I wondered if the idea were more appealing now that there are options besides Warpstone Glow as in back in the day I didn't want like the idea of painting Salamanders because the green paints were so brutal yeah right uh, judging from Instagram Chris hasn't worked on any Salamanders since November 2017 when he posted a Primaris test successor model, but with new options like the Nocturne Green base paint and uh, Vulcan Green layer paint, is it once again the season of fire? Yours, Chris, aka Escanius and Discord. So also, Salamander's got a supplement book. Mm. Fun fact: um, I sold that model, the Primaris model. Oh really? Yeah, uh, it, it is now owned by Pete slash Fienio, oh, really? who bought my. Uh, Space Marine half of the Dark Imperium box set for nice. me. Good split. So um, it has gone to a new home, and no, I don't have any salamander shape plans in any point in the near future. I do still like them because the notion of the friendly marines that set everyone on fire. Yes, it's is, a good one. It's very funny. Yeah, but no, there is no plan there for me really. But I guess it wasn't down to the green paint, uh, the quality of the green paints these days. No, it's it, no. I think I think I was sort of agonizing over chaos over space marine legions for a long time till I realized I like chaos yeah that's what I like yeah and then those new models came along and the new books and stuff and no 
I've, I've not Chaos. made for life very much green at all. Um, I think Warflesh covers very not, very well. Is yeah, kind of the, the, the light, some of the light greens real suck. Mm. However, uh, contrast would make that a lot easier. Like, yeah, he's right about that. Like, I think if I were to do it now, contrast would make it. I struggled a bit with Scar Snake, which is that almost like yellowy green mm. top highlight, and it is quite streaky. Uh, so I can see there's still problems there. I remember the weekend that Contrast was out, or the weekend before it was out, I think when it was on pre-order, um, there, there was like an open painting session in the store, and I was sat there experimenting with some stuff, doing some Thousand Suns, hmm. and a guy came in who had a huge Imperial Fists army, like yellow. Oh, cool. Previously very difficult to paint, in Contrast very easy to paint. Mm. And um, he sat there and he painted a Intercessor or something, super quickly, using Contrast, and he stared at it, and then he went... I've wasted my life. <laughs> <laughs> As you've, like the thousands of points of Imperial Fists. Oh, no. Slowly. The old way. All the, all the old Avalanche yellows yeah. layering up to whatever the brightest yellow is. Yeah. Oh, brutal. Brutal. I felt for that guy. But it was very funny. <laughs> Our final question comes from Alexander, who writes, Hey, friends, that's a question or a request. Could you name the particular feeling of anxiety when a factional unit you're fond of suddenly becomes overpowered after a rules update? Mm, right. Further, is this somehow a quintessentially British emotion? <laughs> For example, my mostly narrative game Iron Hand successor chapter just went from being comfortably mediocre to super competitive and I hate it. <laughs> Best Alex, uh, who's serendipitous. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Serendipitous, which is hard to say after this many old speckled hands on Discord. Um, also, he says very serendipitously, P.S., don't worry about the gap. I think everyone understands life being complicated. Yeah, that's nice. Thanks, man. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so, yeah, Iron Hands are really good now. You've got some Iron Hands. They're I, really fucking good now. I didn't know they were good. Yeah, they got a book. They got a time to put them got... away forever. <laughs> <laughs> that that yeah. is an anxiety, though. It is a thing. Having, uh, being, having a meta army when you're kind of like hobby, hobbyist. I don't think what the word for this is, because it's yeah. partly, partly I suspect... Well, there's a lot of different feelings at once. There's an element of not wanting other people to have a bad time playing against you. Sure. Which is guilt. I yes. Think. Yes. So that'd be like meta guilt. But there's also an element of hipsterism mm. where it's like, I don't want the popular thing. I want the, the cool the thing that looks good but isn't. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely a thing. So. Kind of hubris then. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know. We need a, there's probably a long hubris. word in German for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I think meta guilt is an element of it. Um, there's an element of sort of like discovering that you were playing on easy mode, but it's not quite the same thing because mm. you didn't, you weren't originally. I think it's the anxiety of a stranger misreading your entire hobby identity when you put that mm. when you put mm. that thing down on the table. They go, "Oh, this." And you're like, but that's not me. That's not the type of hobbyist I am. I just... I'm a nice boy. I, I picked them up because they were cool and I liked them. I, I wasn't trying to be meta. Uh, like, it kind of misrepresents you, your your hobby self to other people in a way that uh, has kind of undermined your identity in a way. Yeah, like a sort of externally imposed try-hard identity that you don't that You want. don't adhere to and like, isn't you at all, yeah. Yeah. It's it, like being misread in that way is always awkward mm. then you, how do you prove to the person that you're not that because you put it down and they're going to do what they're going to do they're really good in the meta so they're going to kill stuff and you're just there like oh, I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I just <laughs> I just picked them because I like them I like the way they look <laughs> yeah I'm trying to think if, if there's an elegant phrase for like accidentally try hard yeah almost like um, 
Yeah, there's got to be a... I mean, there isn't... English just isn't flexible enough. To, a, well, it is, but there's, we're yeah, not, we're, we are not. We're um, not. <laughs> that's more likely. Um, there's a pun here somewhere, and it'll probably occur at some point too late. Yes. Hmm. Like a sort of... A sort of meta-guilt, accidental, try-hard sort of, like, embarrassment, basically. It's full of embarrassment, for sure. Yeah, like... I think maybe meta-embarrassment probably covers it. Yeah. Meta-embarrassment. Meta-embarrassment. We'll go with that until the more funny name arrives. arrives maybe later, far once the podcast is up. Indeed. Um, but that is all of the uh, questions that we've received uh, since the last time we did this. Which is... Thank God it was a civilised amount. <laughs> yeah, it could have been, could have been a lot more. Uh, thank you so much for listening and sorry again that we took so long to get to this point as we said earlier we are going to have to have a think about what comes next to the pod mm. but honestly like at this point the community that's grown up around it is the best thing about Absolutely. it so you Super. don't need us really <laughs> <laughs> we're a gateway drug to the discord channel indeed and if, amazing events that they run yeah indeed so if, if you would like to send us a question for a future episode of this podcast or whatever comes after it uh, you can do so by emailing miniatures at com. Um, if you would like to become a member of that community on Discord, you can do so by visiting com. There is a link at the top of the page to the Discord channel. Then you just scroll down to the role models section, which has tons of different channels now for miniatures because it's expanded quite a lot. But the main role models channel is where m- the majority of the action happens. There are also role models rollout events several times a year uh, and so on. It's great. Yeah, it's a really nice group of people. Lovely. Um, they're currently doing a super nice and generous secret Santa. Yeah, that's I've real following. Yeah. Real wholesome. Um, and yeah, and if you'd like to, uh, obviously, thecrankcrowbar.com is where you find out more about the, the podcast and its related network of other podcasts, including the Games Podcast and the Patreon and the YouTube channel and so on and so on. If you would like to follow our miniatures activities on Instagram, which admittedly have been a little bit inactive lately, but if you were to do so, how would they find you, Tom? Uh, I would be at uh, Ludo Paints Minis, which is L-U-D-O Paints Minis. Lovely. And I'm at Exit Warp on Instagram. That's E-X-I-T-W-A-R-P. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah.